I'll go ahead and call us to order. Rana, can I get a roll call? Uh, sure, can. Trustee Avalada. Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee DeVries. Here. Trustee Jensen. I see Trustee Jensen there. We do have a full quorum. I guess I want to make sure Trustee Jensen can hear us. I can hear you. Okay, great. Sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, okay, fantastic. I will move us to public comment. I have Virginia Adewole. Hi. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm a resident, internal medicine resident. We'd like to share a Black Lives Matter statement with you. Human life has intrinsic value. Black life is not the exception. The unconscionable killings of unarmed Black men and women is a public health emergency. These killings, an extension of America's 400 years of systematic dehumanization of Black people, are an affront to our values, our oath, and our mission. As physicians in a healthcare system that has participated in this dehumanization, we have a grave responsibility to be part of overturning it. Now more than ever, physicians must can be compassionate, informed, receptive, and vocal for the voiceless. We must breathe live into the legacy of those who have been rendered breathless. Those like Emmett Till, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tony McDade, and countless others. As physicians, our practice has historically been guided both implicitly and explicitly by the ethical tenets of autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice. Today, we must broaden the scope of these tenets to protect Black lives. Chika? Our, our respect for autonomy is a natural extension of our respect for human life. We reject the pervasive, traumatic notion that the lives of Black people are less valuable than those who are white, privileged, um, and of means. In order to help our patients make sound, informed decisions about their health, to help them exercise their autonomy, we have a responsibility to build an environment that is physically and psychologically safe from bias so that we can provide the kind of guidance that cultivates health and well-being for all. Uh, Non-maleficence. Non the callousness with which, with which Black people are killed is a salient violation of the principle of non-maleficence. Institutional racism, although more nebulous in form, is almost as damning in practice. Our responsibility as healers is to speak out against brutality and injustice perpetuated by society at large while engaging in concrete, concrete ways to deinstitutionalize racism in healthcare through education and policy changes. My turn. Um, Michael, thank you. Thank you. So that's Virginia and then Chica Egbe uh, just spoke. Thank you. And next I have Michael Obagir. Yes. I hope I got that okay. That was fine. Thank you. Um, <laughs> beneficence. Uh, we health care workers of all colors stand together in passionate conviction that we can contrib contribute positively to the health of our most vulnerable patients, not just by prescribing medications, performing procedures, and not even just by listening. The present climate of uh, inequity and injustice renews our commitment to advocate for the most marginalized of our community. From such advocacy comes empowerment, 
uh, combines our respect for autonomy with our commitment to beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Justice. In order for there to be justice in healthcare, there has to be a vertical, not horizontal, distribution of resources. Currently, the most vulnerable have the least. Because healthcare exists within the larger context of society, the distributive justice we seek is uh, extricably tied to civil and legal justice. When we together... Go ahead. When we together in action and voice embody the edict that is Black Lives Matter, we will honestly be able to say that all lives matter and we will finally become a more just and healthy society. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. We also have Robert Vergara. Hi, I'm Robert. Um, thanks for hearing me out here. Um, I wrote something out here just so I'm a little bit more concise with my statement, but um, my name is Robert Vergara. I'm a former psychiatric social worker at John George Hospital. I was recently released from my probationary period, or in other words, I was let go for not meeting perceived working standards. I completely disagree with this decision. I felt I was judged from a limited view due to, due to inexperienced leadership. I believe this is a huge problem at John George, which is the main reason I present myself to you today. The second reason is why I want my job back. I believe I could be a positive influence with Alameda Health System, and I know I'd be a dedicated, loyal employee. I would ensure my future success. I believe there are cultural and structural problems at John George Hospital, and the crux of the problem is namely the good people who have the most experience don't want to move into leadership positions for fear of burnout and losing their union-protected jobs. This creates a vacuum and lets less skilled people move into leadership positions, which creates interpersonal conflicts due to lack of managerial professionalism, workflow conflicts because of the work is not fully understood by managers, and inconsistencies in training because lack of experience by managers. To provide you with some short examples, I trained under two direct supervisors at John George Hospital. The first left about halfway through my probationary period. This supervisor had been a supervisor for about a year at John George and previous to my knowledge had no leadership experience. This leadership was inconsistent in her expectations, verbally hostile and would not engage in open discussion to identify and improve workflow challenges. I believe she was under a lot of pressure and reformed to the best of her, of her abilities, but lacked the experience to provide good leadership guidance. The second supervisor I had after the first one left um, uh, at John George and supervisor for like two months in psych emergency services where I worked, I believe she had some previous leadership experience, but very little experience in a psychiatric hospital. I received very little to no feedback regarding my work performance, but on the occasion I did receive feedback, it often came in a hostile demeanor. I once made a mistake and transposed a phone number from a nine to a four. This, calls, this caused a caller to call her phone instead of my phone. It was an honest mistake, but she made a big deal over an incident and verbally lashed out at me and made a small incident into a big deal. These incidences can be confirmed through emails and my social work colleagues at John George Hospital. Lastly, I want to mention, I don't want to lay blame. I believe we are products of our environments and we do the best we can do with what we have. I blamed a failed system in these circumstances. I believe my release probation was completely biased due to inexperienced leadership. I want to add that I did do a good job at John George Hospital. I clearly understood the work besides the normal learning curve of a new, new job. Previous to working for Alameda Health System, I worked in, in hospitals for 12 years, receiving positive reviews and even taking on occasional leadership roles. Although John George was a new hospital system, I was clear on the role of social work in acute care. Moreover, at John George, I received almost all positive feedback from my social work peers and the psychiatrists whom I worked with. This again can be confirmed by my colleagues. 
I want to add, I'm not the only one who recently had this experience in my department at John George Hospital. There were a few social workers this past year released from their probation, resigned or fired from their social work positions. I believe this has to do with inexperienced leadership and not well-defined working standards. This is a huge cost to Alameda Health System. I hope you will not write me off as a disgruntled employee because I am not. I believe in the mission of Alameda Health System to serve the most vulnerable patients in Alameda County. And I was proud to be hired on to John George Hospital as a psychiatric social worker. And to be honest, I was greatly disappointed when I was released from my probation period, which has resulted in being ineligible for employment at all Alameda Health System hospitals. I hope you will investigate my concerns. I hope the culture at John George can change. I believe the system is very steeped in practices and beliefs and has difficulty seeing outside itself. And I believe it will be a lot to wade, in, wade into, but, but worth the efforts. I'm also asking if you can use your influence to help me get my job back. Despite my difficulties, I know Alameda Health System has the potential to be a great job. I believe I can change the system for positive. If you're interested in more detail regarding my release, I've completed an exit interview and I've sent detailed emails to Joan Davis and Tony Redmond in Human Resources. Thanks. In the spirit of Black Lives Matters, which is a social justice movement, I hope you can reconceptualize John George Hospital as a fun at a fundamental level to create training systems with checks and balances and produce good leaders. I believe this will resolve bias and discriminatory beliefs and will add credibility to Alameda health system. It will allow workers in the probationary period to succeed and will allow new leaders to emerge with confidence that they will be leading in a supportive system with strong, well-informed workers. Thank you for your Thank time. You. Thank you, Mr. Rigger. I appreciate your comments. Did we have any other speakers added, Rana? Thank you so much to all the speakers. Um, very fitting to begin with our physicians speaking on Black Lives Matter. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. That was really beautiful. Um, yeah, it's quite a time to be in healthcare, um, quite a time to be in the safety net. Um, I think between um, COVID-19 and all of the unrest, it feels like everything has changed. And then in some ways it feels like nothing has changed. Um, I, the, the police murder of a black man in this country is really nothing new, sadly. George, George Floyd wasn't the first by far. Um, and it's, it's not even an infrequent uh, occurrence. Um, I think what's new is that um, there's a little more widespread realization that's happening right now. So that does feel uh, different. Um, but I want to um, call out because it is important that we say the names um, that Stephen Taylor was murdered in Walmart in San Leandro just about two months ago, um, apparently in the midst of a mental health crisis. Um, and we know that with the pandemic um, and, and by, a, by a police officer, um, we know that with the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of exacerbations of uh, behavioral health conditions and um, just a lot of stress in our community. Um, and so I think we're all uh, just deeply familiar, um, painfully familiar with all, with all of um, all of the impacts of uh, systemic racism um, and systemic inequities that have been baked in uh, from this country's uh, inception. And this is this is the work that we do. So our mission is unchanged. Our work in many ways is unchanged, um, and our uh, charge to uh, end health disparities is, is unchanged. Um, I think. Although everything feels new with COVID-19 and this new virus that we still don't know much about and that we're still very much in the early stages of dealing with, 
um, all too familiar and tragically predictable are the disparities that are already emerging um, that are bearing out not only across the country and in our state, but even in our own data that we've started to dig into. Um, and I'll speak a little bit on the work of our COVID task force, but it's, it's beginning to bear out even in our own uh, data within our system. Um, and we, um, we really strive and work hard to identify these things early and get out ahead of them to the extent that we can. And so I'm proud to be part of, of a team that is uh, focused in that way. Um, I think there's opportunities um, with innovation just from us bringing our uh, lab testing in-house. This is a huge uh, milestone for HS. We'll hear about that later and just new partnerships or deepening partnerships um, in response to the crisis, like our partnering with the county on things like the isolation and quarantine hotel um, and uh, contact tracing. Um, and so I think all of those things are positive. I think what's also highlighted um, for me and for a lot of us is what, uh, what can we do and what is our responsibility as an institution to ensure that we have um, uh, representation uh, where it's needed, that we have uh, and that we're striving for equity and that we are embedding into our infrastructure um, diversity and uh, ways to uh, ensure that we are best positioned to close the gaps that we know exist and have existed for a long time. Um, so that concludes my remarks and I will hand it over to Yvette with the CEO report. And thank you, Dr. Abelotti, and our trustee Abelotti too. Uh, and uh, I, I add my, my thanks to uh, our, our public comment speakers as well. Um, uh, I think uh, this is a uh, kind of a, a clarifying time for all of us. And I think you know, all of your remarks so so uh, eloquently uh, call that out and really uh, give voice to it. So I, I, won't, uh, I won't attempt to uh, add to that uh, because I think it's been so well stated and I know that we're a little behind time here. So I want to thank everybody for that. I do want to share with the trustees, Joe, uh, that uh, uh, many of these conversations, like in many of your own organizations, I'm sure are, are happening throughout ours. And uh, I think you would be um, uh, pleased to know uh, that uh, these are these are some tough conversations that are actually occurring through all pockets of the organization. And, um, um, you know, they are not easy. And I don't suspect that they will be for a while. But I, I applaud people uh, for leaning in and being vulnerable and being open. Uh, and uh, I've said to the leadership team, uh, when we're having conversations like this, the I think in general, the two uh, most powerful words any leader can say is I'm sorry. Uh, uh, and I'm sorry when you realize that you have uh, uh, made some transgression uh, and hope that people will understand that uh, that should be attributed to the to the head and not the heart. Uh, uh, the other thing I've said to people is, you know, uh, these, these conversations and these uh, revelations and the gifts that people are sharing with you, you should absolutely take uh, personally, because uh, you have a position of privilege and you have an opportunity to uh, impact and influence change, uh, um, both within our organization and outside of it. So take it personally, but don't take it personal. Uh, taking it personal uh, uh, makes means that you are uh, seeing it as an affront or you're seeing it as an indictment of your own uh, values and motives. And unless that's true, then it's not about you. Uh, it's really about where you have the opportunity to make change and you should be open to hearing uh, perspectives uh, and lived experiences that are different than yours uh, and, and allowing that to inform your, your leadership uh, journey and your, your walk as a, as a uh, 
member of this organization. So um, that is coupled with, um, I, I have been appreciative of the opportunity to co-chair the Heady Task Force with Trustee Hernandez. And I won't say much about it. She's gonna give an update later on where we are with that work. It's, uh, it's taking a while, but it is some excellent work and some really dedicated efforts on those individuals who are engaged in it. Uh, we do expect that more people uh, will have an opportunity to shape that work and to shape the, the actions uh, that come out of those recommendations. And um, I look forward to that. Uh, I on, on to say on the budget front, uh, obviously, you all know that fiscal year and under normal circumstances, which we just talked about how far we are from that, uh, this would be the time in which you would be hearing a, a final presentation of the uh, fiscal year. Uh, the next fiscal year's budget. Um, as you know, we're not there. We've telegraphed uh, to you and gotten your consent that uh, this is going to take a while uh, because we want to be thoughtful and be sensitive to all the uncertainties that currently exist. So with uh, that uh, uh, permission, uh, approach still a two-pronged approach or two-step approach we plan to bring uh, to you by the end of uh, next month. Uh, an interim budget uh, for the year, and our goal with that interim budget is to at least achieve a, uh, a positive operating margin, a break-even or positive operating margin. We recognize that that will fall short of what we believe we need uh, to uh, operate the organization, both through our operating budget as well as our capital budget investments that we need to make in facilities and equipment and technology to continue to meet the needs of our community and to provide the resources to our providers and our uh, uh, non-clinical employees that need that they need to uh, ensure quality, ensure access, ensure uh, a great uh, and a uh, deserved patient experience for everybody we serve. So we'll, we'll bring that to you. We'll recognize that it will not be where we want to ultimately land. Uh, we'll continue to do work uh, internal to the organization and externally with you in partnership with our, our county partners and others and the goal is in the fall, uh, ideally September, uh, but possibly October to bring you a final project for the fiscal year, uh, uh, factoring in everything that we will uh, then have a better uh, lens into as a way of funding the organization for the following year. Uh, the only other thing I'll, I'll mention, uh, um, uh, we had, ex I had the uh, um, uh, opportunity to have executive committee with uh, uh, the board officers to discuss uh, some matters that are brewing within the organization, and we've uh, uh, communicated uh, some of that to you, but I suspect and expect that we will uh, share more uh, with you and have uh, more of a debrief and closed session. Uh, and then um, um, to, well, so I won't say much about COVID-19. You'll hear about that with the task force presentation. And then uh, next month, actually, uh, is not a regular board meeting month. Uh, it is actually a retreat month, and it feels like you just had a retreat because you did uh, in August, you have a recess month. And so the third quarter retreat you planned for in July. And uh, and so that'll give us uh, time to uh, uh, go into greater depth with some, a lot of these things that are still pending and that we need to uh, uh, dig into more. And one of those is an update on strategic planning efforts. Uh, we presented to you back in February, kind of a plan that um, um, laid out a process, at least a uh, broad strokes of the process of redoing our strategic plan. Uh, you um, concurred with that, uh, the contours of that, uh, but that was February and a lot of stuff happened between February and uh, today that we had no uh, idea uh, would happen in our in our world and in our organization. So uh, we're recalibrating uh, with everything else.
house and uh, it seems to warrant the same thing in our strategic planning approach. And so there are a couple of factors now that are coalescing, uh, things that are sort of a bit backed up in terms of our heading work, some of our values work we were going to do uh, that's been installed uh, that was going to inform a strategic planning process. In addition to that, some of the work that we have been doing uh, under Trustee Peterson's leadership with Whipley uh, uh, presents an opportunity for us to continue that work in a phase two that you are looking at that we want to make sure marries well with any strategic planning thinking along with I'll add, the final uh, work of the joint um, uh, task force that you have between trustees here and uh, members of the Alameda Healthcare District who are similarly looking at a sort of fragrance of strategic planning efforts. So it's, uh, I think, important and uh, it behooves us to try to line all of those things up so that we don't have multiple um, um, uh, plans or pathways going forward uh, that then require similar uh, bandwidth constraints within the organization to uh, inform and support and, and potentially have to align in the back end. So if we can put some thought with you into that on the front end, I think we'll be better served uh, uh, by it and forward. So uh, those are just kind of, uh, kind of some housekeeping things uh, just to add to the context this evening. And I'm happy to entertain any questions uh, that you have about that or anything else at this point. Uh, this is Tracy. I have a question about the um the budget progress and I, I just want to understand a little bit better since the board bylaws do establish that we have a budget by the end of this month and um, we kind of I think I think this is just my opinion that we do owe our partners some information about how we're progressing on the budget I, I wonder if there's a timeline or if it was just a decision um, just some guidance that well we don't have the information so we're going to postpone it for a while is there any more information that we can share with perhaps like last year maybe write a letter to our, our colleagues on the board of supervisors and let them know that we're going to be delaying the budget or to let our other partners know that this is going to be delayed and and, and i would just as a board member like to know how long it's going to be delayed for and when we would get the board this board would get some guidelines about the budget parameters and and potential program cuts uh, I'll, I'll attempt to answer that. Please tell me if I don't uh, uh, address all your points. Uh, I'll just reiterate uh, with, uh, we talked about this at the retreat last month and then again in the finance committee uh, this month uh, uh, that we were, uh, we were soliciting and I believe got your permission that we would slow walk this in order to get all of these pieces uh, uh, better cemented with additional clarity. Uh, and so as I, as I just said a second ago, we would, um, we're, we're uh, purporting to do an interim budget by the end of July. That is our goal. Uh, and then a final budget in the fall. Uh, so that's that's uh, what we're planning to do. Um, I will say, actually, uh, communications to the county about this process, um, I believe, occurred. And uh, trustees who were involved in the joint meeting with the auditor controller can um, uh, clarify or correct me if I'm wrong there. We had a joint meeting after the retreat in uh, late April or late May, I should say, um, uh, where we uh, had the chance to update the status of our budget planning efforts, where we communicated to them that we were um, because of some additional relief bonds and um, a lower cost and we had forecasts in terms of losses, uh, we were going to be compliant with the permanent agreement at the end of this year uh, and that we needed still to have a conversation because next year was still um, uh, fairly ominous because a lot of this 
uh, benefit that we had also included dollars that we expected next year that came early uh, thanks to some collaboration with um, state partners and uh, local partners. So um, the feedback we got was uh, thank you. That's good to know. You'll be in compliance this year. Um, uh, we would like to table the conversation for what's your challenges next year until after uh, the end of this fiscal year. So uh, it is my perspective, though I'd uh, be happy to be corrected, that the county understands that we are pending that discussion to have greater clarity around how we can partner to address some of those challenges that we've been uh, clear about. Um, uh, and that actually pursuant to uh, the finance committee meeting, um, um, I think it was uh, the chair, uh, Trustee Sequence, uh, asked that we, or, or maybe uh, Trustee Peterson, that we uh, proactively reach out to the county to try to schedule that follow-up meeting. And I can confirm for you that we um, clerk has done that and uh, just so, um, um, after a couple of overtures that she got a response uh, that we'll get a feedback with available dates so that's the best I know but uh, if I'm mistaken uh, you know said something thanks no that answers my question thank you about the timeline and I just again would would share my concern last year we started in March we had some parameters we had this board had some discussion items. We looked at some programming. We had some contentious items as well in May and June when the budget was delayed. And I um, may I, I attend the finance committees remotely when I can, but I may have missed all of the discussion about specific items and programs and um, cut areas of being that may be cut. And so I'm just wanting to share, or I'm wanting to urge you and, and suggest that that information be provided as robustly as possible prior to asking the board to make a decision in July. Because I, I personally haven't seen any information at this that, point. Well, so uh, we we certainly have not uh, uh, presented any information that uh, pertains for any cuts in services. Uh, and that was an intentional decision as well. Uh, uh, the communications and finance committee uh, uh, definitely, but possibly the board too, was uh, we we did not want to repeat last year's experience. And uh, one of the mantras that we have been sharing throughout the organization based off the feedback we got was uh, our biggest priority was to work to preserve jobs, uh, uh, notwithstanding the current situation. So uh, our efforts have been around looking at um, opportunities to enhance our revenue and opportunities to contain our costs that would are, that are more in the line of uh, non-payroll expenses, but also on the payroll side, uh, adjustments to benefits and uh, uh, discussions that would uh, pretend for uh, things like um, uh, delaying COLA increases across the board for the organization uh, uh, in both um, represented and non-represented roles, but those things uh, require a bit more work, as you might imagine, and uh, we are continuing to do that work, and we plan to share that work with you. Uh, but at the present moment, uh, outside of any discussions around, um, I would say, uh, um, modifications to or adjustments to how we provide outpatient uh, psychiatric services, um, and that's in the IOP program. Uh, that is That too has not come forward to you, nor have, have we cemented any uh, plan to bring forward to you an elimination of the program, uh, just whole cloth. So uh, we would actually, we're finishing that work. We had some discussion about that in the last meeting. Uh, we will have more about that in subsequent meetings. We have invited trustees to participate in dialogue with staff along with us in those contexts. We're not at this stage where we're ready to present any of that to you, but certainly we'll do it uh, the moment we know. So, so I have a question. Do, do we need to uh, 
make a motion to just formally extend the existing budget for 30 or 60 days? I don't know that you do need to make one. And I think because it's not uh, calendared, you can't do one now. Um, you'd have to probably do a special meeting. Uh, but I think uh, a communication would probably suffice to the, to the county uh, uh, with respect to this. Um, just, just basically reinforcing what we've already discussed. Uh, but uh, I could, uh, I don't know, Mike or, or someone else might correct me if, that is, if that's ill-advised. Ill no, you're correct. Yeah, I would recommend a, a formal uh, <clears throat> communication with the county, updating uh, the county on any changes that have happened since our main meeting. I, uh, I think your characterization of that meeting is accurate. Uh, Trustee Peterson and I were at that meeting. It was in person, um, actually. Um, I think... Uh, uh, Del Vecchio wasn't able to attend. He, he had uh, some other meeting on, on campus, but um, he did join by phone. Uh, the tenor of the meeting is very positive. I, I think there was full disclosure about what, we're, what was happening with the budget. You know, I, I remind everyone that we're uh, we're in very unique times. Uh, the hospitals across the country are scrambling to figure out where they actually really sit with uh, with their finances, and it's hard to do planning. And that's basically what the budget is. It's a plan for the next year. Uh, when you haven't really got all the uh, elements uh, in place yet, so you don't know what the damage is, you don't know what the um, opportunities are because uh, there there are some potential, uh, you know, there's another round of stimulus, uh, for example. We don't know what the state of California is going to do to assist or not assist. You know, it's, it's – so – that's uh, the reason, the logic behind um, the uh, process that we have here. The disadvantage um, uh, is clear as well. Um, as we experienced last year, it, it draws it out. It creates more anxiety uh, for most stakeholders. Sort of makes the job of the trustees harder and um, it actually narrows, uh, this is a point I've been making over and over again, it does narrow the window for savings opportunity. If, you're, if you pass a budget in the fall, you may only have nine months to make up uh, the savings that you would have had 12 months to do otherwise. But I, I, I think clearly we don't, have a, we don't have a choice given COVID and what's happening with um, our fans. On top of that, it's also epic um, and our revenue collection um, cycle, which I think there's good news there. Um, the CFO is going to report on that later. But I think this was my finance committee report. <laughs> I didn't mean to, for that to happen, but so I didn't mean to do that to you. <laughs> no, it's okay. I hope that Trustee Jensen does that answer your questions. Thank you. Yeah. And Lewis, I think you, you started to mention a formal communication. So maybe in the finance part, we can <laughs> circle back to that. Perfect. <laughs> Okay, fantastic. Any other questions for Mr. Finley? Okay, great. Uh, let us move to the medical staff reports. Dr. Actually, Bellar? you know what? I'm sorry. I do have a question. Um, totally off topic from finances. Um, <clears throat> so, Becky, I know we've seen some recent increases in Alameda County in COVID-19. Uh, how are we doing there? I know you provide us the daily dashboard, but I just kind of want to mm -hmm. hear from you for the for the general public 
Sure, sure. Thank you, Trustee DeVries. Yeah, so um, uh, as a, you're right, as a county, uh, Alameda County now leads the Bay Area in terms of positive uh, cases. We are not, uh, uh, as a, a region, uh, not as in uh, as challenging or, or, or concerning of a, a situation as Southern California in terms of actual experience, but our positive cases are up. Uh, what's been a little bit uh, reassuring or at least uh, comforting is hospitalizations have uh, continued to be relatively uh, flat. Uh, doesn't mean they're low, but they are they are on the flat flatter side, uh, and that's been true across the market as well as within AHS. We we have had a little bit of volatility, um, uh, uh, more with our PUIs, our, our persons on the investigation, than the actual uh, number of positives. In the positive, we tend to stay in the high teens, uh, with a few um, moments here or there where we're in the lower twenties, and uh, uh, a day or two where we were in the lower teens. But we still we tend to be in the 17 to 19 uh, uh, positive patients in-house. Um, we have very few patients, I think less than three, um, maybe even just one uh, that are in the, uh, or, well, we have about three or so in the uh, ICU and then uh, less than uh, one or two who are on ventilators. So if you're looking at um, kind of increasing severity of illness, um, we're seeing less of that uh, than what we saw in the earlier stages of the, uh, uh, the pandemic experience, at least so far. And that's been the case for, I think, a couple of weeks now. So across the market, we look at those things and we're looking at them both as a means of making sure that we are maintaining capacity in the event of either a surge or a peak or a spike or, or however we want to refer to it. We also look at it to monitor um, uh, our restoration of services. And we've been restoring uh, elective surgeries, ambulatory visits, um, um, other areas, interventional uh, services, cardiology, uh, radiology, dentistry. Um, we have brought back our health path program, which is our pipeline program, which is really good. We're, although we're doing a lot of that virtually, uh, we're using the simulation center again for training purposes. We're monitoring our PPE uh, supplies and our, our staffing. And so all of those are things that we continue to look at. And right now we're okay, but we're, we're, we're staying vigilant. I, I was, uh, in particular, uh, curious about the PPE supplies. If we see a trend uh, that we see right now and it continues to go up over the next month, uh, how, how are we doing on PPE inventory? So uh, what's important to say is we're still on uh, what's referred to as allocation with our distributors, which means that we're not getting everything that we would normally get because there's still um, scarcity in the broader um, um, supply chain market. So uh, we keep a close eye on it. And so we, we have sort of three tiers, like you know, current state, um, I don't know, surge, and then uh, something else, uh, or maybe surge is the last one. Uh, and we do a kind of a, a stoplight system. And uh, for most of those types of PPEs, and it varies from gowns to masks to face shields to uh, uh, surface disinfectants and uh, hand hygiene gel, we're in really good shape. Um, um, uh, we're in, even in, uh, in most of those cases, good in that sort of middle stage if we were to see increases in utilization. Um, again, what's been good is uh, while we have had a lot more positives, and that's uh, good because that means, um, uh, well, we're testing more, but the spread is still out there, which is uh, what we're confirming. Uh, it's just that people have <laughs> Hospitalized. The other thing, and you heard a reference to it earlier, is we, um, we have uh, testing in-house now, so we have greater um, um, uh, turnaround times for many of those tests, so that keeps us preserving PPE, particularly for those PUIs that turn out to be negative, uh, so we can take them out of the questionable category sooner. 
but we're also able to test patients um, uh, before they come in for visits um, uh, too. So, so it's kind of a kind of a um, codependent sort of uh, um, interplay of all those things. But right now we're looking okay, uh, but we don't rest because we're still on allocation, which means that there's there's still certain things we can't get, like pampers, those purified air uh, uh, respirators. Um, um, that are just tough to get in the market. We're barely getting any of them. So we're using our existing inventory, um, redeploying them because we haven't had to use them as much in our ICUs and other areas. We can use them in some of our procedural areas where we didn't have them before and we need them now. If, if I could be indulged with one last question. Um, I know that the, uh, this, the pandemic has, has really peeled back the curtain on a lot of the inequities that our uh, society faces. Um, I, I heard a, a disturbing statistic that recent testing showed, for example, that the, uh, uh, the Latinx community was showing like a 26% positive rate on the tests that were coming back. Um, are, are you seeing that? Are, are we seeing this, this huge disparity uh, uh, in, in, in who's, who's coming back positive? Yeah, uh, forgive me, Dr. Avalade, because uh, uh, this is what we talk about this a lot in our task force. And uh, uh, she and uh, Dr. Bouquet actually uh, really helped me. We, we were looking at our dashboard that you've seen before, and we're kind of looking to see if things that are mirrored in the larger uh, uh, experience are reflected in our organization. And sure enough, uh, that, that definitely uh, uh, seems to be the case. Latinx culture, we have a lot more uh, positive uh, uh, patients um, um, in terms of the uh, percentage of the, uh, and, uh, the population that's being tested and turning out positive. I think that number for us was close to, was it about 20% or was it, I, I can't remember what it was now. Uh, high percentage. Um, uh, but a similar, a similar thing um, um, happens and we've seen across the county, African-Americans are disproportionately represented in the deaths. Uh, and uh, so we look closely at that and we're trying to look closer to see like how many of them are um, connected to uh, 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 congregate settings if they're in SNFs or uh, in other facilities where uh, they are uh, in close proximity. You know, we've only fortuitously, and I should say only because I honor every life, uh, uh, but we've had uh, uh, 14 uh, deaths to date in our organization. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, on a on a risk basis, a much smaller uh, number than some of our uh, our search circumstances and folks around the country have experienced. So, so we're we're relieved about that, and a true testament to our our, our employees, our, our physicians, our nurses, our respiratory therapists, the entire team. They've been doing an amazing job. Um, uh, a lot of those were people who were uh, DNRs. Um, uh, so. Um, um, many of them we couldn't uh, put on ventilators uh, and uh, use all the resources at our disposal. The disparities are definitely there. One other area you didn't mention, uh, access to drugs. Uh, that actually has been a little bit better for us. So remdesivir, the drug you hear a lot about, uh, um, we have working with the county been able to get uh, a very stable supply uh, where any patient who has been in our system who has qualified for remdesivir as a uh, a uh, beneficial course of uh, treatment for their um, uh, for their uh, experience with COVID-19 has been able to get it. So, and that's been the case for several weeks now. Um, but we're continuing to monitor that because we know that that supply is also uh, um, um, drying up in the broader market. But the disparities are there. If I could just say one anecdote, um, Dr. Trona Benet uh, has uh, been working with um, a couple of others who uh, have been helping us to expand our testing. Uh, and we're getting 
better. We still have a long way to go uh, and we're pushing, uh, but we're getting a lot better at our testing. We have two sites, uh, one at Highland and one at San Leandro, but we visited a couple of others. And to your point about disparities, uh, been some very interesting learnings uh, with some of the sites where partnering with other entities sometimes creates a disproportionate access for people outside of the market where the testing site is. Uh, so we visited, we had the uh, fortune to visit Roots Clinic. We visited, uh, I actually couldn't join them when they visited West Oakland, uh, but I joined them again when we went to Allen Temple uh, uh, and saw some great work at all three of those sites, really impressive work and got a lot of lessons. One of them uh, around um, the, the, uh, the number of African-Americans who are actually getting tests and other cultures as well, uh, particularly from a socioeconomic perspective, uh, uh, access uh, may be less of an issue now. And it's some business reluctance to get the tests in cases where people are concerned that they won't be able to continue to work and uh, provide for themselves and their families if they're uh, put off pending a test result. And then some were around just distrust in the healthcare system uh, and the country there, I say. And so some people were saying, heard anecdotes of people saying they won't get a, a test because uh, they believe that it's just a, a way for the government to implant chips in, in them. And so, you know, um, as Dr. Abelardo said, we heard some of this stuff during the ACA and uh, getting people to sign up Medicaid and other things. So uh, we, we face a lot of um, uh, uphill challenges and particularly uh, uh, so in some of our uh, uh, communities of color and socioeconomically uh, disadvantaged communities, the ones that we we uh, really um, uh, cherish the, the opportunity to serve in terms of making sure that we don't inadvertently further those disparities. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? All right, medical staff report, Dr. Ballard. Hi, Trustee Abelardo, thank you. Um, I will start out saying that med staff's primary purpose for being is to deliver quality of care to the patients and ensure patient safety. In the recent past, there's been a great deal of conversations and energy poured into other conversations with members of the medical staff. And I think that letters have gone to the board of trustees about different departments, different leaders. And I am saddened that there's so much of an upheaval in the operations and HR of the docs in this hospital and the mid-levels in this hospital and this hospital system that it that those types of things spin out of control and go the way they've gone. When I've been um, approached and when members of the medical executive committee have been approached, I think the party line is that if it doesn't involve patient quality of care and patient safety, then there has to be a different way to solve it. It's not something that med staff should do. It's not our domain. And I think the flip question is, what does that then create as a relationship between med staff and the, the executives or the operational wing of AHS? And what does it mean in terms of the relationship between med staff and the board of trustees? And I think, you know, I don't know that answer. I really don't anymore. You've, you've been privy to my 
reports every month now for 18 months. And I think trust and building trust between executives and the med staff has been a priority for me. I am taking it off my goals list because I feel like it's broken. And I don't know currently with the way things are going, if it's fixable in the near future. So that's, that's basically my report. You know, I think in terms of quality and patient safety, the med staff is right on track. You know, anything in any of the communications to the board recently that would even remotely touch on FPPE or quality of care, med staff's all over it and we've already investigated it and did inquiries and all kinds of business around every question that has to do with patient safety and quality of care but I am not gonna get involved in the HR stuff. It's not my domain, it's not what I'm meant to do. And I don't, I don't know how the relationship looks between med staff, the executives and the board of trustees around any of these issues. Cause my gut feeling is, is that patient quality of care and patient safety is gonna suffer if the other stuff doesn't get fixed. That's what I feel. And I don't know what can be done. And that's where I am. That's my report. Thank you, Dr. Bellard. Trustees have questions? Uh, <laughs> Trustee Abeletta, I, I do want to comment on this because I want to be very uh, sensitive to what Dr. Bellard has just stated out loud and it's been stated before. And there continue to be moments where I think the trustees are put into this very difficult position in moments just like this, where we know that we have a limited amount of time to process, a limited amount of time to uh, think of interventions, think of ways to address this. And uh, just for the record, uh, I've asked that uh, our leadership team develop an approach, a plan, so that when the public speaks to us, when we receive emails confidentially, when we get phone calls confidentially, that there is a viable process for us to uh, use to address those concerns. And at this point, given what uh, we've experienced in the level of concerns around trust and communication and relationships, um, it's possible that we need to look at the, the possibility of bringing on some sort of independent third party, whether that's an ombudsperson, or we find a role within our institution that can be in some way, shape or form, a slightly independent voice, if you will, that the board can uh, ask questions and have answers brought back about what is happening and do that in a way that's productive. Uh, because otherwise I think, you know, all of us are gonna continue to receive um, concerns and emails and and also we continue to hear these incredible comments uh, at the public uh, that the public brings to us and and by statute by rule we really can't comment at this time it's really not the venue to do that but the, but we need a venue and we need an appropriate way to deal with that and so uh, I I hope our trustees uh, collaboratively will look at this at our next retreat whether it is an internal person already in uh, our offices that can be placed in that role 
or if we need an external third party. But um, I hear you, Dr. Ballard. Uh, I know that I've received those kinds of concerns. I'm sure everyone on the board has received those. Um, it's not falling on deaf ears, but I think we do need a process of how to resolve. Can I jump Thanks. in here? Can I just respond to that first, Joe, if that's okay? So I, I, did, I said this in QPSC and a lot of you didn't hear it. I don't think that anyone in the medical staff leadership or in the medical staff in general has um, any, finds any issue with the board of trustees because you're all heroes. The fact that you put as much of your energy and time on a volunteer basis into trying to make this system what it is, you know, what it could be. We really, we really admire you and respect you and just think you're amazing people. I think that the reality is though, you're doing this on your, on your free time. You're putting, you know, you've got lives and you've got jobs and we all realize that. And so I, you know, whether it comes from Governor Newsom or Alameda County or Board of Supervisors, I, I personally agree with what Trustee Hernandez said is that, you know, somewhere there's gotta be a consistent, buoyant and supportive entity, be it an ombudsman or whatever you wanna call it for you guys. You, you, you deserve that. You deserve some, something that can help anchor your efforts. That's that's a you know a position that's supported by all the, all the things that support us. So and and it can't be your employee. It needs to be something else. It can't be Del Vecchio. He's got enough on his plate. It has to be something else. And we don't expect you to do it. But in order to improve that relationship across the board, you guys need some help for this very thing. And I'll let you speak now, Joe. I just wanted to dovetail that to what she said. Yeah, and I, I'm just uh, I'm just brainstorming here because it is very painful when you hear a comment in open forum about a personnel issue, either from that individual or from others about an individual, or when we get a random email. And we know that we cannot talk about personnel issues in public. It's a it's a, it's a no no, and yet we are a public agency, and therefore we're supposed to maintain a level of transparency. Um, I do think potentially this is a way, uh, this could be um, uh, resolved through um, closed session of our HR committee. Um, you know, when I first joined the board, we, we uh, didn't have an HR committee or we brought it back and we dealt with some very difficult budget and, and negotiation decisions in that committee. And we obviously had to deal with them in closed session because it was about negotiations. I felt like it got us to a better place. And then we, we pulled back uh, and then we, we re-implemented the HR committee, but it mostly uh, is dealing with broader issues around benefits, packages, around employee engagement, about how we're doing it on our workers' comp goals. But <clears throat> maybe the uh, HR committee needs to have a closed session where it deals with these HR issues in a manner where board members can feel informed and can have dialogue uh, without violating our, our uh, 
you know, a person's, you know, privacy because we're dealing with personnel issues, which are difficult. Um, so yeah, I just, uh, it, it is a very difficult position and, and, um, I'm not even entirely sure what veiled thing you're referring to today, but I know of at least a couple that have hit my inbox in the last couple of days. Um, I have to assume it's one of those, but I don't know. Um, as a trustee, I don't have that, that depth of experience. I'm not there every day like the doctors. Um, so maybe, maybe we could build out the HR component of our work to, to address these things. I'd like well, I think, I'm oh. sorry. I, I think part of the problem is that our culture, I mean, I think that that will help solve certain problems, but there needs, I think there needs to be crosstalk and there needs to be some sort of sense that, yeah, people are working on this for, for the culture of trust to get regained. And I think it's the culture of trust and the, the, discontent and the fragmentation and the silos. I, I use that word in the in a conversation with Del Vecchio early this morning. And you know, I think it's the fragmentation of that distrust that's really undermining us having a culture where we can move forward and deliver care and have con, you know a, a staff that feels like they're not gonna be hoodwinked under the you know after a while. So I, it's just, I, I don't know the answer, but I, I do know that it has to do with trust and it has to do with relationships. And I feel like we're worse now than we were even two months ago. And I'm concerned. Yeah. I would, I would just add that, I mean, we've been hearing the lack of trust, lack of trust as the number one concern now coming on two years, is it what 18 months for sure? And at some point in time, we've got to like, if things are going the same way, but the trust is not being rebuilt, something has to be done. And we've all been talking about like, yes, we need to do something and we wish, but I too feel that we hear. Um, and the if there is that, that uh, neutral independent, almost like we have an internal auditor, I feel like who, who has the, <laughs> ability to do it it has to be an independent person who is not part of the hr i feel very strongly that that it has to be independent of hr to be uh, looking at uh, so that it has the trust from both sides um, it, this is not one you know waiting one group against the other the entire idea is that both both sides have to feel like they we can trust this, um, and that the the that there are no conflicts here, there are no underlying issues here that we can you know focus solely on what some of the root issues are, how and how can we rebuild trust? Uh, a, a, a crisis really brings out a lot of things that are under the surface and some of these have been simmering for so long and some of them have been out in the open they've just been exacerbated during this time so i um uh, uh, i completely would support um the idea of uh, you know neutral uh, an ombudsman or some kind of role and um, dr bullard that wouldn't be for us like we are here in service of you the staff like our staff is the main thing if we we are obligated uh, in our 
oversight duties to be making sure that this uh, organization is not simply sustainable in the fiscal sense, but sustainable in every other sense. Yeah, thank you. I thank you, Dr. Ballard, for sharing that very, um, what felt very just raw and authentic and in the moment. And I, I appreciate that because I know um, uh, that's a tough report to give and it was a tough report to hear. Um, thanks, mm -hmm. uh, Trustee DeVries, I think, for um, mentioning uh, existing structures within the organization. I think it's really important that we look at our existing structures and we use them and to the extent that we haven't we need to and we are obliged to as the board of trustees so we do actually have an internal uh, audit and compliance person rick killer if i'm not mistaken that's the title compliance and internal audit that i see the like they're not um <laughs> that um is not Chief compliance officer Thank you, and which is not part of HR and functions very much independently and and can uh, can undertake um, further, I think, in depth um, analysis. I'm trying not to use the word investigation, <laughs> um, but but at our at our direction as board of trustees, and so I think uh, we've probably underutilized him. Uh, just a suggestion. Maybe we have. Maybe we haven't. But. Um, but he has a role that I think could be useful to us if we as trustees have questions about what is going on in the HR realm and then trustee degrees, what you mentioned about HR committee. I don't know um, whether that makes sense in terms of the scope of, of that committee, but it may. I think we have to be careful, obviously, as trustees that we're not getting involved in HR matters that we don't have any business being involved in. And so that's always the line that we're walking, right, even when we're listening to public comment and um, understanding that there's um, some of these things are just delicate and also beyond our scope and we can actually do more harm than good um, uh, because we, we may or may not be, um, we may, we should or maybe should not sometimes know what some of the details are and only in certain circumstances. So um, I think that there's a lot here. I do want to just say though that I, I think in, in the spirit of saying that we have internal structures in place and we also, um, are wanting to pull things closer as sort of as evidenced by this really tough work that has happened in terms of bringing out care under, um, you know, in, into one group um, that I believe has a name, not NUCO, but I'm just going to say NUCO because we're still in the process and we're uh, very close to closing out that process. And I don't think any of us have been under any illusion that this would be easy or not painful. And um, and I think that there was there has been pain along the way. Um, and these are institutions that um, you know, in terms of, of oak care and in terms of just AHS, uh, that have been here for a long, long time. And so so change is, is difficult. So I just kind of want to flag that we're doing some pretty major things. Um, I think we're all concerned by the, the emails um, and the messages that we've gotten that really range from everything to um, a lack of trust with the current process to um, historical and entrenched racism within the organization. And so there I said it. Um, but these are things that we have to confront. And so, uh, you know, I think um, there are ways that we as trustees can get involved and and um, and assure ourselves that um, that we're on the right track um, to do what we can. And then I think that there's areas where we can make recommendations around what maybe should be in place uh, for staff to resolve um, issues that are beyond our scope. Other trustees want to comment? 
Thank you, Dr. Villar. I really appreciate it. Um, Dr. Ingenio. Yes, I can give my report for San Leandro Hospital. Um, some more germane uh, concepts related to the facility directly. Uh, the emergency department volumes have been up a little bit um, and have been uh, tolerable, but still not to full capacity. And they're um, planning and there's uh, adequate preparation for increased volumes, although that hasn't been the case. The ICU transition is actually working quite well, um, and there have been no further issues. Specialty coverage is still a problem, especially for neurology, um, and uh, potentially also with acute strokes, it's been an issue. Um, surgical volumes are still low, although they've increased some, and the testing is there now um, in the back facility uh, in the tenting area so we can order tests in epic and get them done pre-op and that's been the plan um and uh the covid volume of patients has been low as doc as mr uh finley has reported um in our facility and that uh, there have been still some growing pains i think with the vascular ultrasound lab um Hopefully the new equipment will arrive for some fairly um, important tests, which uh, can't be done quite yet. Um, and uh, there have been some concerns about turnaround time on reports. Um, and hopefully that will be resolved as well shortly. That was mainly from the emergency department report. Um, and that would conclude my report. Any other questions? I'll be glad to entertain those now. <laughs> Questions for Dr. Daniel? No, okay, we'll go to Dr. Marzouk. Yes, uh, thank you. I, I think uh, the main uh, issues that uh, were raised uh, have been raised by Dr. Ingenio, primarily especially coverage in uh, neurology uh, has been a, a concern uh, for the uh, inter the intermediate to, uh, to long term, particularly, I know that uh, administration is uh, working closely in the Jamal Dean about getting telemedicine uh, neurology and a contract for uh, neurology telemedicine coverage for the entire system, which would include obviously Alameda Hospital in San Leandro, as we only have one neurologist. Uh, urology is also uh, an area that that they're uh, working on to uh, get urological coverage. Uh, finally, uh, Dr. Uh, Hussein uh, gave a, a report, uh, a general report, which was very beneficial both to the Army District Board as well as our Medical Executive Committee about uh, the uh, the relatively uh, unsatisfactory uh, ratings uh, for Alameda Hospital via certain agencies, the discrepancy between uh, CMS star ratings and leapfrog uh, ratings uh, in terms of, uh, of C to D ratings, whereas the uh, CMS star ratings were within average of our systems. Uh, of various other hospitals in our 
certain material, but uh, the quality ratings were differences in method methodology, metrics, and uh, it was made a decision to subsequently provide further data to uh, leapfrog and participate in uh, leapfrog uh, quality measures uh, for the future. And uh, uh, those are essentially my uh, updates in the report. If there are any questions, I'd be happy to address them. I have a question. Yes. Um, Dr. Dr. Mozik, thank you, um, Madam Chair. Dr. Mozik, um, can you, it seems to me that we've been hearing, and this is Dr. Ingenio as well, we've been hearing for some time, it seems to me at least a year or perhaps longer about the neurology coverage at the, the hospital sites. And I wonder um, if you have any insights into why that can't be resolved or if there's ever gonna be a resolution to that. Can I comment on this? This is uh, this is Ghassan Jamaluddin, uh, Trustee Jensen. Uh, we have uh, a new contract with Dr. Kang, who covers partially right now uh, for Alameda Hospital, and uh, and uh, we have uh, the Alameda Health Partners, two physicians who are covering uh, one day per week. Now there is a national shortage of urologists. This is a well-known fact throughout the country. We have really tried to recruit for a long time and the lack of having robotic surgery does not attract young graduates to come and work uh, work for us. I had communicated with UCSF and with Kaiser in the past uh, to have access to uh, our surgeons in case we recruit to have access to do robotic surgery and it was not successful. Now recently, uh, Dr. Tamish King, the dean, introduced me to the new uh, chair at UCSF. Uh, I met with him actually this week, and he's very interested in a partnership to work on recruitment and having access for robotic surgery at UCSF Parnassus. So we have a follow-up meeting, and uh, he's also interested in uh, creating uh, an expansion of the urology residency program at UCSF, so uh, we are working really very diligently on on this. This is uh, this is like in summary, it has been like really almost a weekly thing addressing urology at the system level. Thank you, Dr. Jamaldi. I um, hope that answers the issues that were brought up by the physicians as well. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, I, giving follow-up to the MEC in future, but I have a follow-up meeting, I think, next week, and we are going to try to uh, uh, to see what other, you know, I, I, I try with the urologists at San Leandro to cover. Uh, they were not, uh, except for one of them, were not coming to, were not accepting to come to Alameda Hospital, so we will we'll continue to work on this, Trustee Jensen. And was Dr. Marzuk or Dr. Ingenio going to chime in there too? Yeah, no, I was going to chime in for a second. So, uh, you know, I, and I think to me it comes down to why is this a crisis? It's all, because the community physicians who used to do it aren't interested in doing it anymore. Multiple reasons why. Uh, I think the perception and, and somewhat the reality as well is the system really does not want to have physicians functioning at the outlying facilities 
this is the perception. It's not what's articulated, but it is the perception and somewhat fact and reality. Uh, does not want to have physicians who are not employed by the system. Um, that's not encouraged. And so those physicians for neurology and urology are less interested. I think urology is more technology-based. Neurologists, less so. Um, there are neurologists in the community. Um, they, aren't, they weren't particularly busy at, uh, at San Leandro Hospital before, but they didn't feel like uh, they were needed further um, on a system level, and so they have moved on. Uh, can I answer this, uh, Trustee Abuleta? Uh, as far as uh, urology, I communicated with every single urologist who uh, was community urologist at uh, at San Leandro, and we explored, uh, you know, any contractual agreement with them. They just were not uh, they were not interested in covering Alameda Hospital. We continue to have contractual agreements for coverage of San Leandro. Uh, as far as in neurology, uh, they they did not. I mean, I I I, I don't know about about them uh, seeking to, for coverage for for either San Leandro or Amida Hospital. But I will be happy to explore contractual agreement in case they are interested. Our yeah, you are correct. Our uh, payer mix is not is not advantageous. But uh, you know, with the legal and contracting team, we tried to create. A fair, a fair, uh, you know, agreement for for our coverage, but but uh, they never, they never even proposed to to have this conversation. So, if I'm understanding, it sounds like with respect to neurology, we we're, we are open to not just employer relationship but also contracting out in order to create capacity but we have not found interest there is that what i it's more for urology uh, dr oh. abueleta uh, yeah okay. but for neurology uh, we haven't uh, i don't know uh, dr tornabin is on the call whether she has had any contact because she has also been working very hard on a contract for teleneurology and we are trying also to uh, recruit as well i don't know felicia do you want to comment about this yeah, we don't have, uh, uh, I've been working closely with Dr. Cahill um, and we have not gotten any queries from community physicians and continue to work on teleneuro, um, working through some uh, different bids from different vendors. Um, and, and that's an ongoing process. We're in a back and forth with uh, two different vendors right now. Was someone trying to chime in there? Okay. So any other questions for Dr. Marzu, Dr. Daniel? Okay, great. Moving us on to item D, committee reports. QPSC, Dr. Bouquet. Hi, everyone. Uh, uh, just a brief report on the May 21st, 2020 QPSC. We did standard process approving credentials, policies, and procedures. We then moved on to the standing item of reviewing uh, our readings. The, our two readings uh, relate to reopening of the healthcare system in the setting of COVID. One of them came from the California Medical Association, one from CMS. I think this was a very apropos uh, set of articles given that uh, we've, we've been engaging a deep dialogue on restoration of services. They, these, these dialogues are going on now. 
I, I, I will give a brief little commentary as noted, you know, this, we, we need to be prepared for, as I say, a waxing and waning of this, uh, Texas, I, I'm from Texas, as everyone knows, um, or many, many of you know, I, I'm, and I've been talking with many of my colleagues, uh, the governor just issued, uh, to close down electric procedures in Austin, San Antonio, Houston, and Dallas now, uh, because of their research they had the highest COVID days they've had uh, two consecutive days so uh, uh, our reality is it is going to be moving back and forth and I that's where I do, I do I am proud of our restoration uh, dialogue that we're having because it, it will prime us should we need to pull back and then resume again uh, a lot of that was addressed in those two documents then we heard from the SBU our standard SBU report this one was from behavioral health last month um, and we went around all the changes which have been going there. I'd like to close out by saying the, the, the main issues, Dr. Siddhartha closed by saying his two main issues, rank list number one, were uh, he queried whether we had the ability to sustain the improvements that, that we've made. Uh, he didn't know if our organization had the energy to keep doing it and resources. It was just a question. And number, his number two concern was safety, uh, safety at, at, uh, at, 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 in our behavioral health system. We then heard from the regulatory affairs and patient safety team. There was a lot of discussion around um, uh, leapfrog, as we also had in our retreat. Um, uh, just reminding that the leapfrog uh, uh, survey had come out and given two of our three hospitals uh, very poor ratings of F. Uh, and we had discussion about whether, well, what is the meaning of that? And, I, and I'll say that, that, that the discussion is still ongoing and is one that we'll continue to have within quality. Uh, uh, our, our chief compliance uh, uh, and our chief of safety, I asked them what are their main concerns. One uh, stated that processes and tools are not just, they're not where they need to be right now. Um, two, sustainability of this engagement that we've had. So a theme there about our sustainability as an organization. And, one of, and the third commentary was uh, questions about just culture, uh, our culture of our system, is it truly a just culture? Was the query that she asked, um, which is which I think relates to some of the dialogues which have just been taking place here. Um, with that, uh, that was the entirety of the uh, of that meeting uh, for May twenty first. Any questions? Thank you. That's my report, item D one. Thank you. Questions for Dr. Bouquet? All right, D2, Trustee Chiquin, finance. Yeah, so I'll make it short because I already gave it quite a bit. Just to wrap up on the uh, communication. So I would ask staff if they could uh, put together a uh, communication to uh, senior county staff, updating them uh, where we are financially, uh, um, indicating what our process is on the budget confirming what we had shared with them back in May um, and updating them particularly on the net negative balance. Um, again, I want to repeat that that meeting I thought was very productive. Um, there are two supervisors uh, participating in the meeting. Uh, the county administrator was there and the county auditor. Uh, it was uh, an overall uh, problem-solving focus, uh, very initial, uh, but there was no sense that anyone uh, was interested in doing anything but trying to figure out 
how to get over the big challenge that we're facing, particularly around uh, cash next year. Um, one little uh, one thing I want to put on the record is it. Some folks, it sounds like someone needs to go on mute. Everyone's, there you go, thanks. Um, so real quickly, on the net negative balance, I think there's, um, we're gonna need to respond to some things that came out of the uh, grand jury report. One of the items would be uh, to clarify that actually uh, we do not account for um, liabilities related to recruitments, future recruitments. And that's because we don't, we have this relationship with the county that involves the county really being our treasurer. And so any excess cash in our bank account is scooped up by the county. Um, and that's per agreement. I'm not, there's no commentary there, but uh, therefore we don't have the ability to reserve unless there was a, a specific agreement with the county to reserve for those recruitments. So uh, that's just a clarification I wanted to provide. And I think that's all. The, the other thing I'd say real quickly, back to Trustee Jensen's question, there was a pretty um, preliminary, is how I describe it, discussion about um, what sort of what's the low lying uh, fruit and what's the harder work around uh, finding savings um, once we get to that point. Um, and it was, you know, pretty theoretical because staff has. Again, uh, they're coming out of uh, the COVID uh, distraction. Uh, they're still working on crunching the numbers so that they can uh, provide us something that is real and not uh, uh, aspirational. So uh, there was a rich conversation about that. I think we'll probably want to have that again at the full board as we look at the options that are presented to us to get at um, filling the gap on the budget. So more to come. And that's my report. Thank you. Any questions for Trustee Shaquan? Yes, please, Kim. There we go. Did you want me to make a few comments? Well, the no, yeah, sure, we can do that now, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, April was a pretty strong month for us. Our net income was uh, 20.6 million. Um, our net patient service revenue was down, uh, as you're all aware, with the, with the COVID pandemic, our charges are down about 25%. Um, but what happened is we did a true up on the Medi-Cal waiver, which ended up in a 23.7 million pickup. Um, it was a, a combination of several things happening. Um, the government uh, paid out the safety net care pool. So that was 15.1 million worth of cash that we're now gonna get. And then we went back through all of the uh, years with uh, CAPH and updated the models and trued up for that cash. Uh, so it ended up being a, a big pickup in revenue um, but not quite as much of a pickup in cash. Uh, we also saw um, supplemental revenue from the CARES funding. We we're recording the 14 million over three months, so 4.7 million, and then 9.5 million from the GME that was approved. 
uh, for prior years. So uh, that put us over 24.1 million in net operating revenue. Our expenses were higher than budget, 3.3 million, mostly driven by purchase services, um, a lot of that due to COVID, uh, and also the ongoing things that we've talked about, the uh, legacy AR vendors uh, and OMS, uh, outside medical services. Um, in regard to, so net revenue, positive net 20.6 million, cash was actually positive 32.4 million. So great cash month, obviously that changed our situation with NNB. We've actually got some cushion for the year end. Um, we received cash from the CARES SNF relief fund of uh, 825,000. I told you about the safety net care pool distribution of 15.1 million. We also got prepaid on HPAC for FY20 of 16.2 million. And the county also pushed through another 300,000 in other grants like HIV and some other things to get us money sooner. So a uh, big cash month of 32.4 million. So lots of big swings in our, in our, uh, in our financials. Um, the good news being that we've got that, that immediate cash flow uh helping us for the nnb and just helping us with this you know with the whole pandemic and our and the known hit we're going to have on net patient revenue um but again it doesn't solve our problem next year our cash flow is still going to negatively be impacted and i think we'll hit the nnb limit probably in september Thank you. Well, you rattled off all that great news really fast. I want to make sure I got it. There was a separate CARES allocation for SNF, you said? Yes, for the skilled nursing facilities, 825,000. Okay. Yeah, in the, in the front of the presentation, there's a, a, a box of all the, all the funding opportunities and what we've, what we've gotten so far uh, in the PowerPoint. There's also a recap of our expenses as well. Thank you. Questions for Kim or Trustee Shaquan on finance? Okay. Moving right along to audit and compliance, Trustee Jensen. Uh, the audit and compliance committee approved the contract with Moss Adams, the external auditor, and there was discussion in a number of areas. I'm the new chair, so I um, am not going to attempt to explain all of the issues that were discussed and addressed. Just to say that uh, Rick Kibler has always did a great job of, of supporting the committee and the contract was approved with Boss Adam. Great. Questions for Trustee Jensen on our compliance. Short and sweet. Okay. Um, moving right along, item D4, Heady Task Force, Trustee Hernandez. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Avaleta. I am going to just share a little bit of the uh, current status of where we are and also try to provide you uh, a summary of a statement that we believe we need to adopt in order to um, have a more clear vision and a set of priority around, a strategic priority around which our work will be organized. In essence, as you know, our work uh, began COVID-19, but unfortunately we had to put it on pause. 
And so right now where our um, uh, different committees are is that they've looked at best practices that are being provided to just assess where are we in our level of adoption of those best practices. There had been a small um, effort like this done already, but it was found to be uh, less than thorough. And so there's a little bit more to that assessment. And those five different task forces will meet uh, next week, and we will be looking at what their progress has been and begin to have them tell us more about which of those items that they've e evaluated should be placed on uh, a priority list that would then translate into strategy. And second, there are also items on the best practice list that have to do with the metrics that we would want to place on our equity dashboard. And whether that's a separate dashboard than what we currently have now available through all of the different um, business units and our true north metrics, that's not been determined yet. But in essence, imagine for a moment, just as an example, that we might need to begin collecting from patients uh, information about the social determinants of health that they face. So are they unemployed? Do they uh, perceive themselves as food insecure? Do they have no transportation for uh, reaching our system or our facilities and so on? And so those items will come forward and we're going to have an opportunity to review them. And um, I think that we'll be able to catch up and get more of this done, certainly in the next three months, if there isn't another interruption based on uh, the, the facts of what's happened in our uh, current environment. Um, I do want to share with you the statement, and uh, let's see, I'm going to ask uh, Mike, would you allow me to share my screen, or I'll read it out loud, that's fine, but um, it's a statement that's truly a draft, and uh, what we're doing with this is simply sharing it, it is a draft, and I've placed it on my screen, and for those of you not dialed in, I'm just going to read it out loud. Alameda Health System is committed to serve diverse communities of Alameda County with the highest quality of care for all. Our efforts to address bias and racism of all forms, interpersonal, structural, and societal, will be guided by a dedicated diverse staff at all levels of our organization and an inclusive culture that respects and values diversity. Our services, our outreach to communities, and the care we deliver to all patients will be driven by a dedicated focus on reducing health inequities and advancing health equity. Our work will be guided by diverse stakeholder engagement and institutional transparency on our progress towards our goals. I did get some feedback about making sure we have some kind of statement there around um, measuring our progress. And so between the quality committee meeting, I just changed one word there at the very end around goals assuming that we measure our progress on goals. So um, having said all of that, let me stop sharing. Um, I, I would like to just entertain different uh, feedback from the committees, uh, sorry, from the trustees, uh, and I'll send this out to everyone, and certainly the committee will have a chance to play with this as well. This is very draft, it's just um, been formed in the last 72 hours to just basically begin putting something in front of members of the committee 
committees to to begin asking is this aspirational enough does this bring us uh, a, a way to address what the vision will look like for this committee i think at the end of the day um, we will have lots more priorities than we can probably address in one um, year but the idea that we've identified those things that are important those things that are meaningful I think will be truly a step in the right direction. And that's my report on where the Hetty Committee's at. I guess I have a question, Trustee Hernandez. I know um, I, now it feels like ages ago, pre-COVID times, we had started a conversation around um, taking a look at the composition of our staff, um, including um, you know nursing and providers and so forth and seeing how that compared or was it reflective of our um, our community and our and our patients is that so is that some part of the scope of the heady committee yeah um and again without creating a lot of distraction here i i will just share with you just a high level view of the dashboard that we're using to try and look at everything i'm not going to go through every single one of the four pages of this uh, but You'll notice here that we're looking at in item 1.3.1, I'll read it out loud, tracking employee demographics to determine diversity at all levels reflects the community served. We're asking ourselves, do we do that? Is there enough information about that? And right now it's seen as a strength. However, there are other pieces of this where there's opportunities for improvement. And um, there are over 70 items inside this matrix of best practices and what i would share with you all is um, there's no way our system would look at all of them um, i'm really impressed with the staff's ambitious nature of looking at them anyway and just wanting to identify which ones resonate the most for where we are right now um, i believe this is a successive approximation to our goal of having the best of the best practice around diversity inclusion and equity and so we are at a starting point, um, but yes, very important pieces of uh, the uh, effort uh, are, are very detailed. And again, I believe uh, we're on the right path to make sure at the end of this first stage that we'll have a list of priorities to share with the trustees and to uh, review those as well, obviously with the executive team to make a decision about where the priorities are. And I'd like to say that I'm on one of the um, task forces, the subgroups out there uh, on community connections. And we did a, took a pretty, you know, candid, harsh look at ourselves and said, like, it's not what we think. What would the community say uh, if if we had to like rate ourselves? Or and so very, very honest, uh, candid conversation. But there was just and we have folks representing like you know from contracts ira and baljeet to folks from all of the different and we were able to come to like a shared focus on like where we think we stand with all of this so it's really giving us a roadmap to where to go ahead and i would like like um 
um, the draft of the statement is really good and we should focus both on what 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 we do for the community and then what we do in inwards as well some of our own um, uh, processes that the leadership team is doing with you know workforce development and what does inclusiveness and DEI mean both from uh, when we turn um, us it look inwards as well as what we do in, in with our patients and our community. So, yeah, so proud to be part of this venture. It's much needed. And sometimes we think just because we are, we happen to be in the middle of a very diverse community, we must somehow be doing it. And it's very intentional. We need to be intentional about how we do this. Uh, I, I would agree with you, Kinkini. It has to be intentional. I mean, I think um, we had this discussion in QPSC for the other two QPSC members. The third reading of our readings today, I, and I always encourage my fellow trustees to read the readings, was that Dallas County uh, declares racism a public health emergency. So I, I, I love the spirit of what uh, Trustee Hernandez and Del Vecchio have been working with that pledge. And then the question I pose to us is, is, is how, declarative, how, how declarative are we about such statements, you know? Uh, I, I believe, I personally believe that declarations of self matter. Uh, uh, they have to be backed up, of, of course. Um, and, I, and, I, and I questioned the opportunity for us to have our own resolution uh, uh, declaring racism uh, 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 an emergency here, de de declaring disparities against LGBTQ to be, uh, to be uh, uh, a disparity, which is a public health emergency. And, and all these things that we've been talking about, giving them even if it's just a little bite with a resolution, I, I, I ask this. I ask this board to consider what are these declarative moves, and that's a great piece of paper. Uh, that pledge, and I and I'll ask the same question: What would happen if that just went into the the, the the heap of other pieces of paper we've created? And that that that's the danger of this. And I I I, I am fully behind the work that uh, led by Trustee Hernandez with with, with Del Vecchio, and I and I ask ourselves, and not to answer now. It's more rhetorical. What can we do to be more declarative about our values here? And maybe it's a resolution. That's all yeah, I have to I guess say. I would just add our, our neighboring county, Santa Clara County, did something similar, declaring racism a public health crisis, actually. And so right. I think it's something to think about with our partnership with the county, um, because I think having um, a declaration at that level um, is something, you know, that we can put some benchmarks in place um, around. I think for ourselves internally, I think we're, we're starting at a great place. Uh, that's a lot of detailed work, Trustee Hernandez. That's pretty impressive, all those different indicators. And I think just wanting to, um, you know, not lose sight of the fact that this is, these, these uh, I think this, these issues are, none of it exists in a silo, right? So we're talking about HR. We're talking about opportunities for advancement. We're talking about a pipeline and training um, and making sure that our workforce is reflective of our community. Um, and then we're talking about our community and our patients um, who, you know, where, where are their disparities and how can we make sure that we're using sort of an equity framework um, as we do our, our, not just our individual care with our patients, but our whole population um, management, right? Our population health. And so kind of tying all those pieces together um so it's a big a big undertaking um but uh, certainly timely and um critical yeah and and i would just close by saying uh, i think one of the challenges for any system today 
is there are very few systems that have a chief health equity officer. That may be something that we need to consider down the road. And what that would do is it would have the leadership, the executive presence, if you will, of someone who can bring many different elements of the system together uh, because you cannot do health equity in just one department. It requires a very systemic view of how we're addressing this issue. And so the talent of people in HR and quality and in uh, patient relations and so on are all necessary. We do not have that kind of structure uh, like most systems. And so I, I hope that everyone will come to appreciate that once this is done, it really will take a very different level of relationship and trust and engagement across the entire system to actually implement some of the priorities that are identified. So this will require substantial agreement and change to move it forward. Thank you. Other questions or comments? I, I, I had one. I, I, um, I to, we have a lot on our agenda, so I don't want to say too much, but maybe just to get something started. I, I uh, think I really appreciate uh, Trustee Hernandez's um, skills that she's providing us around this sort of process. Man, I, I have no ability to do this myself, so I'm really, really excited that she's offering that to us. And I would say also simultaneously, there's no reason why we couldn't um, take more of some action steps to evaluate some things that might be um, might have been added that actually over the years that actually are worth review. I think we should look at our relationship with the sheriff's department, for example. Uh, school districts right now are looking at their relationship with police departments. I don't think we should assume that that's um, uh, a glorious uh, thing for the people we serve. And we, have, we ought to look at it very hard and long, not tonight, but at some point. should ask staff to do that. And then I think we need to look at, since we did a Winchester Mystery House thing with the system, we ought to look at um, our three hospital campuses and our other sites to determine if they really are serving uh, with equity, you know, uh, and, and not assume again that um, that is happening. I mean, you know, one of the things I hear in conversations is that there's still expectations that we might be a community-based hospital. The problem with that sort of approach can be the, uh, you know, institutional racism is uh, enacted and people are left out of uh, that sort of hospital system, we are not a community hospital, we're a public hospital system. And I think uh, it's worth looking at whether we're behaving in such a way in some places within our system that it's excluding people. That's, I could go on and on, but those are the ones that come to mind uh, right off the bat. Those are big ones. Thank you. Other comments, questions? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I, I love the statement. I, I love where this is going. And I just want to echo my uh, support for uh, what Lewis just said about reevaluating our contract with the sheriff. Um, you know, OUSD just decided to get rid of his police department last night, which I think is a good thing. Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, I, li I like that. And I think just having a framework to evaluate it, right? How are we engaging with our community to gauge, you know, maybe we find out that's the most 
safe way that's what they feel is the safest um you know or um and staff as well what you know and so i think as we think about equity it's all again it's not just one level and it's it's complicated but um do we as trustees have a finger on the post or do we have an ability to um, tap in that way um it's not as clear-cut as uh removing police from school in my humble opinion <laughs> um you know but uh the, the questions are the same is this the um least traumatic and most effective way to get the job done i think is, is the question and i think it goes across all of our contracts really and i think we've already done a lot of work in that area um, around fair procurement and um inclusion there um but i think it's good that we have a specific focus and then i think to your point um trustee shaquin is how how are we evaluating uh, all of our sites and the way that we engage with the community and if it isn't um serving the population how can we fix that i mean what what things can we do whether that's through outreach or communications or through whatever that might look like to make sure that we are being the most impactful um and um, supporting our mission in the best way possible at all of our locations so thank you for that it sounds like an agenda item for a future um meeting that'd be great i would I just one other thought that just occurred to me um lived experience so um i I hear an awful lot of um, stakeholders in our system with a pretty strong voice, and I applaud them for that. Um, I don't really hear our patients. I don't hear that. So um, if we're going to get at equity, we have somehow got to listen to that lived experience. And uh, I don't have any ideas right now, but I would add that to the conversation. We need to get at that. The QPSC has ideas. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess my last thing is just, you know, making sure that that data is informing what we're talking about too here and that we're being guided by our own data. Um, I think there's some things that we don't don't um, highlight enough in terms of areas that see disparities, let's say across the county, but not within our system. Um, maternal and child health, I think, is one that has been recently highlighted. So what's going right there? I know that we're listening to our patients and um, and so what's going right there? Um, I think we have some uh, patient advisory type of um, bodies, and so maybe looking at how those are functioning and what's going right there as well. So just thoughts on that. Maybe utilizing those bodies to provide us more qualitative data yeah. alongside the quantitative data. Great. Good. Thanks for the discussion. Um, anything else on Hetty? I'm going to give just a brief update. Um, item D5, the COVID-19 task force. Um, so we um, had been meeting weekly up until about two weeks ago. We decided to go to bi-weekly. Um, the county um, has had been attending uh, most all of our um, task force meetings. Um, and they completed their assessment of our facilities with respect to the PPE question that had been brought to them. Um, and I think it, it went well. Uh, the Board of Trustees was very engaged, um, and uh, there really were no uh, findings of concern that relate to PPE uh, access and availability. I think we, you know, everyone acknowledged that there was certainly shortages and rationing sort of early on and um, that things were rapidly sort of put into place around communication um, and uh, evolving sort of um, uh, procedures around that. Um, so that was positive. The um, 
they healthcare services presented to the board of supervisors on June 8th. Um, so that sort of concluded that portion. Um, I think, uh, and I think then kind of moving the engagement of the county with, with our COVID-19 activities into more of an operational sort of engagement, which I think is was uh, sort of positive as well, that we're just ready to sort of our seeds and get into some of more of the operational um, side of our, our partnership with the county. Um, and so I don't know, Becky, if you want to say any more about that, but I'll just probably just quickly touch on the other couple of, of points. Um, and then definitely um, uh, Trustees Bouquet and uh, Banerjee and Delbecky can add where I've missed. Um, the main conversations I think that we're having now um, are around the reopening and sort of what that process is looking like, um, both to bring patients back in for certain things and also what that looks like sort of for our staff and, and their safety. Um, and then last but definitely not least, and we had a really uh, a couple of very robust discussions on this, uh, including having uh, Director uh, Watkins Tart from the Public Health Department attend one of our meetings as well. Um, just to talk through sort of the equity um, discussion as it relates to, to COVID and some of the disparities that I, I mentioned at the beginning of this meeting that we're already seeing. Um, we have that beautiful dashboard, and I think, um, thankfully, we don't have um, huge numbers of deaths, neither within our system nor within the county. Um, the county, I think, was at 128 deaths that uh, last time I looked, and so we have just over 10% of those, so the, the numbers are still small. Yet, I think uh, what we discussed at this last meeting was really ensuring that we have a framework um, that we're really looking at disproportionality in terms of the case fatality rate, um, cases, um, and severity of disease so that we can do what we can to sort of get ahead of these things and mitigate them if at all possible. So we'll continue to kind of dig into those uh, those issues and see if there is perhaps room for us to uh, collaborate not only with the county but perhaps with other um, uh, others of the hospitals to kind of share um, data and findings there so that we can, we don't have to wait until there's a huge disparity that, you know, we sort of see um, emerging already um, to figure out what, what the strategy is. Um, I don't know if trustees or if Delbo Kiffin wanted to add anything. No, you covered it all. Yep, good summary. Yeah. yeah, same here. Sorry, I was on mute. All right. Okay, then D6, Alameda Hospital Seismic Planning Ad Hoc Committee update. Uh, uh, so uh, I uh, uh, present, uh, we, Louise and I and, and uh, uh, Trustee Banerjee and Trustee uh, Jensen been part of the seismic safety committee and we've been we've been meeting with alameda hospital district and uh you know, going through a process of looking at the seismic requirements both uh, the part of it was implementation of the 2020 standards and now we're now we're looking at what's required as part of the 2030 standards and i submitted a uh, a uh, kind of detailed five-page report with recommendations that I think uh, I want to go over under discussion items. I, al I also submitted uh, copies of the various reports that were part of the process. And it's going to, uh, unless you're a really quick reader, it's going to take a little bit of while, while to digest all of that. 
And uh, I was, uh, I didn't want to have us two or three hours tonight going over it. So uh, I'm, I'm suggesting as part of uh, the action items later that we, uh, there's, there's four items, there's four recommendations for the report. And I, I guess I could either go over them later or now, or I could do it in the discussion point later in the, later in our meeting. Uh, I don't know uh, which, which you would prefer, but I think there's, uh, if there's any outside discussion, we could certainly do it then. But the, the, uh, the, uh, the recommendations are pretty clear and we're, uh, the committee is feeling to really do this justice. We should have an offsite or, or a separate discussion about it. So we can go through all of the, uh, details and all, all of the so anyway i you know that's that's where where we are we've had a we had a total of six meetings and we're at we're kind of at a point now where we uh need, need a little bit of direction um on next steps uh, we need some action by by both boards and uh i think we need that to move forward and we're we're concerned because we have a you know, we're the time is fast, fast approaching about uh, what uh, requirements. And again, I I think I should probably go over it in the uh, discussion phase of the tonight's presentation. But we do have we do have four items for consideration. Okay. Okay, that sounds good. Any then any questions for Trustee Peterson at this point? I'm just confused when Ross, when you say we should go over this during the discussion phase, like wait, are you talking about during another item on the agenda? Yeah, it's actually, it's on the agenda twice. I happen to see it there. See it down below. Oh yeah. 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 Now, I was, I, I just discovered that when I was sitting here. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, cool. All right. Fair enough. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. So, Luis, did you want to add anything here, or we'll wait until we get to the discussion phase? It sounds like. Yeah, I don't have anything else to add at this point. Okay. Alrighty. Okay. Thank you. To be continued. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So we're at the consent agenda. Motion to approve. Second. All those in favor? Aye. All those Aye. Aye. Motion passes unanimously. Consent agenda passes. Um, all right, so now we are at the action report discussion. Um, we have a discussion item, item F1, um, revised conflict of interest code and form 700 policy. I think that we were planning a fairly robust discussion on this item. I know we're at 7.15 now, so I wanted to sort of check in with general counsel if we wanted to, um, I, and I don't know if there's any time sensitivity to this, whether we want to uh, continue this item to a future meeting or go ahead and, and cover it today. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Avalada. This, uh, there's not a specific time sensitivity in terms of doing something in this meeting. This was basically set up to provide for an opportunity to uh, present the changes in this meeting, have discussion amongst the trustees and not necessarily approve it in this meeting. And so what I might suggest is given the lateness of the hour, um, 
everyone has uh, the new policies, uh, and I think they're fairly straightforward in terms of they are primarily just clarifying some pieces through updates of the law. Um, I would, you know, solicit, you know, any questions or further clarification needed by any of the trustees, and we could put this on the next agenda, you know, for some additional discussion um, and for the approval at that time without, you know, losing place in terms of where we're at. Um, and of course, if there's, you know, something that someone would have brought up tonight that they think requires a change of the policy, they can send that to me and I can incorporate that for the next meeting. So if that's, uh, that would, you know, perhaps, you know, save us, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, you know, tonight. So I'm happy to do that. If you... Yeah, do we really um, need to have a robust conversation? I mean, it looks fine. You're updating it to meet current codes. I would, I would move approval personally. It's not an action item for today. Oh, say again. It yeah. was a discussion item for today. So yeah, and I, yeah. So I don't know if if trustees have burning questions on this topic now. I think that the topic of conflict of interest, you know, comes up in the sense that you know we, we all wear a lot of different hats and and things come up sometimes um, where we're not sure if a conflict exists, for example. So. Um, you know, I think we we can have time to discuss when we have the action item on the agenda um, and time today. But I don't know if um, right. I have any concerns about that. We're good. Okay, so we are going to continue this item to our next board meeting. Does that work? Okay. okay. Fantastic. So item F2, report of the Joint Planning Committee on the Future of Alameda Hospital. Okay, Trustee, <laughs> back on. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if you've all had an opportunity to at least read the, the summary of the report. Uh, ho ho hopefully you have. If you want, I can, I can quickly go through that again, or I can just kind of move to the recommendations portion. Uh, and it, well, Trustee, Trustee Peterson, before you do that, I... Yeah. I was hoping you might take this. Of course, I'm concerned about the financials. Um, sure. So there's a chart here that uh, shows uh, financial, what's called financial projections. I believe it's on page 50. Actually, in the packet, it's page 74. And it has current uh, with the AHS and then standalone. Uh -huh. I have a couple questions about it. So there's... Um, HS support allocation is that otherwise known as admin overhead? Uh, yes, but we we uh, it's one of the things that we need to look in a little bit further. It doesn't have a lot of detail to it, uh, right? But that's in the ballpark, okay. And then the supplemental revenue sort of a it, it's probably the same answer. This is things like measure A, and we have to determine. Right. It's not clear. Yeah, these are some of the things we're talking about, been talking about in the finance committee. Uh, we need we need to have a, more of a detail on what the revenues really include. And when we use words like supplementals, which supplementals are we talking about? And right. What is what is the breakdown of those revenues? Uh, general, you know, how much of the revenue is Medicare? How much is Medi-Cal? How much is other sources? Uh, some of the revenue here gets a little bit confusing because there's some subvention involved. There's, uh, you know, the, there's funds that come from the Alameda Hospital District, uh, and then there, and then the 
loss at the bottom, also some of that comes from Measure A. So it's, right. It needs to be fleshed out further, but I, I, I think those are really good questions. So, uh, so, so the, uh, so you would probably agree with me that the conclusion, it's fair to have the conclusion that we probably need the sort of things that were included in a WIPRI report about better analytics, a better financial uh, software um, system process to, to get refinement. Okay. And that's this ties, this ties, this ties right in. Uh, Kaufman Hall, who did a pretty extensive report when they got to this part of the report, as I understand it from a review with Wifley, when we were also looking at the same thing as part of their study, they had to really resort to some cost report stuff because really they didn't have they didn't have enough detail of you know, for instance, do, does overhead include rent? Does overhead include, does it include revenue cycle? Okay. Does it include uh, human resources? But, you know, some of it, I think it probably does, and some there, there's kind of a question about. And Got so it. One of those things where we really, for the, for all of AHS, there are things that have to be fleshed out. And this is a pretty good chart in terms of showing you that you're getting a lot of information here, but in some ways, you don't really have a lot of detail to be able to make good decisions. Okay, so I just ask everyone to put a bookmark in this. This is why. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be advocating that we do have some money in the budget for improving our financial um, systems. Yeah. I'm not Very good catch. <laughs> so, uh, so any, anyway, uh, the, the, the seismic, the seismic review committee that we have uh, is basically was looking at the, at the 2030 uh, 2020 requirements, which Louise can give you an update on, and then uh, and then we're looking at the 2030 uh, requirements. Uh, there were three reports that we included in in as attachments in our report. Uh, one one of the reports, uh, the one from Hoffman Hall, concluded that uh, as it stands right now, that the Alameda Hospital, they looked at Alameda Hospital doing it as the standalone, continuing as part of the system the way they are now, are looking at the overall system and how how Alameda Hospital could better fit into the overall system. That latter one really was not done uh, because it because the timing of it in relationship to the strategic plan of, um, of uh, Alameda Health Systems was not underway at the time. But we, but so they really looked at the other two options, and the the conclusion was that uh, that Alameda Hospital could not make it on it as a freestanding standalone community hospital that really needed part of a bigger system, and um, and so that uh, you know, and it and they did talk in the Kaufman Hall about different configurations of services and how best to do it. And uh, and then they all the uh, when you look at their numbers, all their numbers are actually done in 2029 dollars. A forecasting model to actually move it into the future. So that's why some of the numbers are as big as they are. Uh, then the second attachment was a Radcliffe Architect uh, report. But uh, by the way, both both the Kaufman Hall and the Radcliffe's were done uh, funded by the Alameda. Uh, and the 
the Rat Radcliffe report looked at the various options that were available uh, in terms of bringing how you could reconfigure services in a way that would allow you to meet the 2030 seismic requirements. And then also shortly looked at uh, what it would cost to build a new hospital, which is the other option. And the, and the numbers are large. The uh, number to do a remodeling of the South Wing, which is probably one of the more viable models, we're looking at something in the neighborhood of $120 million. And then the, uh, uh, if we were to look at building a new hospital, uh, it would cost $284 million. It's very, very, very large numbers. And, uh, and if things were static, you know, we'd be looking at uh, having to uh, develop the project in the next 12 months. Um, I think we probably do need to look at that, but I think with the COVID-19 um, uh, uh, issues that have been raised, there are some questions about, and I don't know, Delvecchi, if you've been involved in that, about the possibility of moving back to 2030 uh, seismic requirements or making uh, adjustments to them. Um, those conversations, I, I think I've shared with the board, those conversations were uh, um, started before the pandemic. Uh, um, and so they um, have discontinued uh, during this uh, uh, process because it just it further exacerbated the, uh, the challenges of the organizations that are still the, the, the handful across the state that have yet to meet this requirement. To clarify, uh, the Kaufman report shows this is a lost leader. Uh, you know, it's not. Uh, it's not going to solve. I mean, we got a we got loss in this if we continue the way we're doing it. Yeah. So the so the the uh, which get which gets into the recommendations. I think that uh, maybe we should we should just go to the recommendations real quickly. If, the, if, if anybody else have any comments before we do that. I had a real quick one. Uh, what's a no-build easement? What the heck's that about? Uh, I'm not sure. Luis, maybe? Okay, never mind. I, are you, I'm sorry, I was, I, you're, you're talking about in the Ratcliffe report, you saw that no-build no, no easement? Yeah. Right, so so remember that, uh, and again, the short answer to that, and, and certainly, uh, you know, the architects would be more eloquent about the whole process, but essentially what it means is that uh, Alameda Hospital is built uh, is built that entire property is built on fill uh, on, on on land fill uh, that used to be water in the past and so there are certain easements that are required that you cannot build on just again due to the fact that uh, it's not you know sustainable for to support that type of, of you know of environment or anything like that um, if I could just add actually the hospital itself was built on the on the water so the hospital's been there for over a hundred years and so the original hospital, wasn't built on fill at that point. There's some fill from the hospital parking lot basically to the beach at, at what's called South Shore, Shoreline Drive, but the hospital itself, the Clinton Avenue part is was historic and original and not fill. Got it. Okay, so so there's 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 basically four recommendations that uh, that the committee is uh, proposing be considered. The first one 
after after both of the boards have an opportunity to review the report, you know, and you have you know more than a couple of days to take a look at it and the attachments, that we do a more formal presentation and and discussion uh, to take place within the next you know thirty to forty five days. So we can have we can have a more thorough discussion about this rather than you know presenting it in a uh, at at our at today's meeting. Um, it's it's further recommended that what whatever actions we want to take the appropriate actions with respect to the issues that are discussed that we be able to come back by and to the uh, to the committee and to to both entities by the end of September really to have some kind of a preliminary plan of what what the next steps are. Um, the second thing that we thought really is important that we really start the process is uh, is in the area of legislative advocacy. I think that there's there are questions about whether or not the uh, 2030 seismic standards can be moved out a little bit, that there might be changes to them. There's also discussion to the extent that it that, it, that it's financially seems financially viable uh, uh, funds for uh, retro, perhaps funds for retro building retrofitting or even you know construction of a new hospital might be available and uh, I, you know we have to do it in the context of the other recommendations but I'm suggesting that that's one thing that's really important that we look at and that we do it to the extent that we're all on the same page that we do it jointly with um, with the Alameda uh, district uh, hospital board. Um, the third, the third issue uh, is explore uh, ways that we can use Alameda Hospital in the ED now to make them more, more part of the system and more uh, viable. And some of the some of the options that were discussed by the committee were the possibility of expanding the coverage of the. Uh, ED department geographically, so that uh, we, we have a situation right now where uh, non-COVID uh, 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 Highland Hospital is overloaded with uh, their emergency room is typically overloaded with clients. You know, pre-COVID, you know, it, all 50 of our emergency beds are filled every day. We've got 40 or 50 people sometimes waiting in the emergency room. Could we work? Could we working with EMS perhaps take some of that? load and move it to Alameda, which has, um, which is closer to, is closer to certain parts of Oakland than actually even Highland is, you know, when you look at the Chinatown area and, and some portions of, uh, of West Oakland and to have that, to have a way to allow people to have more, more access to emergency services. And that could improve the profitability for both, uh, both Highland and Alameda. And these are ideas that, that we have discussed. Uh, um, I'm, let's see. Um, uh, other options were there's been a lot of discussion. Counties actually uh, brought it up a couple of times. The idea of the need for more uh, psych inpatient beds, either either geropsych or perhaps medically compromised. And is that a is that a viable use for some of the acute care space that's not you know not currently being used. And um, another item that was discussed, probably less less of a likelihood, but uh, something that might be considered if it was viable under Title 22 is kind of reconfiguring the ED so perhaps it also could serve a primary care coverage. 
because the EV is currently being underutilized. Um, and these were all discussed within the context of our JPA and the I and the you know the underlying commitment to the district board that when we were operating together that the emergency room and the acute care beds were were really important to the district and to the local community. So um, anyway, if there's uh, Tracy or Ken Kenny or Louise, if there's anything that I've kind of left out in my quick summary of this, um, I, I'd, I'd uh, encourage your, your input. You, you got it all. <laughs> so what the only thing I would add, sorry, Ross, the only thing I would add, it's not really um, clear in, in the in the information that's provided, but just just so the board is is aware and clear that um, all of Alameda, other than um, Fairmont, with what's remaining at Fairmont and at um, at the the new uh, acute rehab, all of the post acute beds in the system are part of the Alameda hospital license. So as the board considers what should happen and how to move forward with Alameda hospital, that should be considered where, if the board feels comfortable with um, not having direct um, uh, oversight and access to those beds. You're talking about the, the SNP beds, I'm trying to. Yeah, the 200 SNP beds. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, that that that's really an important element of what uh, the, the Alameda Hospital provides to the system. Um, I I think our the the uh, um, task force was really looking at a way to create a win-win uh, win. You know, a win for the Alameda Health System, a a win for obviously the continued operation of Alameda Hospital, and then a win for the community we serve. And, uh, some of the suggestions I just came up with is if they were viable and, you know, we could, even if it was on a temporary basis, you know, the idea of relieving some of the congestion at one emergency room by making better use of another emergency room, for instance, uh, uh, seems like it's something that uh, is worth considering. Um, the, uh, the sort of, isn't that the sort of idea that could be tested? Yeah, I, I, I would think so. I mean, I, I had an opportunity, you know, as part of our COVID-19, I was talking with the uh, EMS director and, uh, you know, and he was talking with the ambulance folks. And while I didn't bring this up directly, I mean, it it could be something that could be considered. You know, for instance, we could say with certain parts of Oakland, especially if if uh, if Highland was full to the, you know, to divert those clients to Alameda. So that doesn't happen now, or I guess I just wonder why that doesn't happen. Yeah, now. That's kind of, yeah. It has to be did that with the transfer center. Yeah, my understanding that it has to do with the fact that the ambulance services in Alameda are covered by the fire department, and they're not part. They're not part of the EMS system in terms of so. So what happens is the EMS ambulances. As I understand it, they just don't come to the island. Delvecchio, do you have any any sense of that, or or Louise? I do not. You know what I think would be helpful is if these options could be, um, and I think staff needs to do this. Quite frankly, they need to be quantified in terms of the financial 
perspective, we also need to know what the limitations and challenges and opportunities are within each option. And then uh, I think that'll give all the parties involved a better sense of what is really possible moving forward. Yeah. And I think, I think some dialogue with other uh, folks such as EMS would, would be helpful as well, because I know they get frustrated when their ambulances are, you know, backed up at, at, at Highlands as well. So I, you know, I, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say that seems to me like a conversation we need to have now, even just apart from the from the future planning around. I mean, there's no reason if if there's a long wait time at one ED and it's um, it's just as close, and we didn't need the level of Highland, um, the trauma center, or anything like that. Why we couldn't um, start to have that conversation now? Right. Absolutely. It's feasible. Yeah. So the 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 uh, the other thing that came up was uh, obvious is that uh, it's, it's hard to um, it's hard to look at the future of Alameda Hospital without looking at the future of Alameda Health System and where they all fit together, you know. And so one of the things that was recommended, and we actually received a. Uh, uh, a uh, 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 first step at kind of a next approach would be the idea of having a strategic planning effort that uh, engage the Alameda board and consultants and the folks uh, uh, to look at what what our ongoing needs were and where where the hosp where the, where everyone fit into it. You know, is if if you look at the overall health system moving moving forward. Is there a is there a place for Alameda Hospital? Where, you know, is there a potential that we could specialize different services at different areas and make the best use of the resources we have? Um, and so uh, we we had asked for uh, a, a proposal and we uh, received a solicitation from uh, from uh, Kaufman Hall that they how they might approach it and that's included in your package and uh i know louise had and uh and uh, uh had more uh discussions with them i believe right louise so you have a little little sense to the context of it and i believe we you worked with kaufman hall before when they were doing the other study as well no yes no uh, I did not work with uh, with them in their initial study, the one that's presented oh, okay. here in the package. Okay. Uh, I did have a conversation with them uh, as they were preparing this proposal that was presented in the package today, and uh, it was largely, uh, you know, just again talking about uh, at a high level what uh, what it would look like and what they would uh, need to consider as far as putting together a proposal that would then be up for consideration as far as. The, the greater plans of what the health system is doing and ultimately what you all decide to do as it relates to the strategic planning direction of the organization. So, and so anyway, that, uh, that's also included in the report. It, it is, uh, in Kaufman Hall's first go round, that is something that they felt needed to be look at, looked at and it wasn't something they weren't able to do. And, and I, th I think it makes sense that, uh, uh, again, it has to it has to dovetail with what we're doing in the way of strategic planning, but to look at all of our resources and figure out how how to best use them and and 
within the context of that, what what could be the role or what could be a win-win role for uh, Alameda Health, Alameda Hospital and Alameda Health System as well. And I think they're, you know, it's a valuable resource and we don't want to lose it if there's a way that we can make it uh, work for all. I wonder if that EMS idea could be flipped. Uh, but I wonder if uh, in order to save a hospital on the island, uh, the city would be willing to consider changing their relationship with the EMS system in the county and no longer have their uh, fire department be the primary, but rather uh, contract with the same EMS system that the rest of the county has. Well, I, that, 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 would, that would be a big, that'd be a big push. I well, I, you know, I, I'm afraid, you know, someone's going to have to do some heavy lifting somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I'm saying, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I think the, the uh, folks on, if, if you look at it this way, folks on Alameda in Alameda don't have a problem getting, you know, getting to Alameda Hospital. I think the question here would be, you know, like I said before, here we have, you know, we've got two resources. We got a larger, more well-staffed uh, ED at Highland, okay, and then we have a smaller ED at at uh, Alameda. One ED is overused all the time. People waiting in the waiting rooms, backups. It, you know, we lose revenues because you know people have to wait so long for services. Uh, we have problems with placements and so forth. And then we have another, we have another uh, ED that's what located eight miles away, six miles away. Okay, that's that's under uh, substantially underused. Where well, our EMS system isn't really welcome. I mean, I can see their business decision they're making. So I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting a particular idea. I'm just saying we got to be really creative. Yeah. It's a flip of the idea. Maybe the, you know, the city, uh, if they, you know, you ought to consider it. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. I want the island to be less of an island, quite frankly. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that, that, th those are, those are the recommendations from the committee. And I'm hoping that, uh, that they'll uh, seriously be considered and that you guys will, uh, as an action item, take up the first recommendation. And that is that we have a more, after everyone has had a chance to look at the report, that we have a more in-depth discussion within the next uh, 30 to 45 days. And then we come up with some uh, recommendations, our board and, and, uh, and the Alameda uh, uh, district board and uh, perhaps even come together in a discussion and then decide what 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 are the next steps going forward we could um we could propose putting it on the um july retreat agenda yeah if that if that would be acceptable to everybody i think it's a really important item i really think it takes it's worth very serious consideration i think that you know before we cast away a resource that's really important that we should look at ways that we can all work together and come up with a better system that works for everyone. Anyway, that's my, that that's makes, my two cents. Yeah, I think it makes for a great agenda uh, item for the retreat because as Lewis, Lewis said, this is heavy lifting and we're not gonna figure this out in 10 minutes. Yeah. And I also, I wondered, did the committee discuss at what point uh, we invite stakeholder engagement? Um, you know, whatever that means. But I mean, we started to have 
somewhat of a conversation um, that was interesting at our last retreat. Um, and, you know, that sort of touched on the edges of some of this, including, you know, some recommendations about other partners and, and things of that nature. So I don't know if that's something, um, and we can certainly, uh, off, you know, do some planning around what the conversation needs to look like, or, or are we really talking about this first step, just really being internal to the board of trustees to get to push it a little further along and then bring um, sort of more uh, fully formed uh, options to, to a broader discussion. Just wondering if that was discussed. I, uh, no, but I, I think the I think the latter makes the most sense that we okay. you know, first. I don't actually know. I, 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 I agree. In parallel. We've started a public process in partnership with that with the health district. I think we need to continue to have a process that involves those stakeholders. Otherwise we're not we're just gonna we're gonna take two steps back. Okay. I think we invite them to our July retreat to be part of the conversation and we all have to do our homework before the retreat so that we can have an intelligent one. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, again, I want to repeat, it would help me as a trustee. And I think it would help all the stakeholders, actually, if we had some more quantifying of the cost of different approaches, the barriers that we see, you know, I know a, a big one around the urgent care approaches that uh, labor doesn't like that. So we just name it, right? And say, this is what we'd have to overcome. Um, if it's EMS, we'd have to over overcome that, you know, whatever. So take the options and, and uh, try, to, try to give as much meat to them as possible and list the, the challenges that we'd have to overcome jointly. Agree. Uh, and I, you know, uh, perhaps perhaps we could also invite uh, you know presentations by uh, the Alameda uh, hospital system folks as well. I think that might be very helpful. Uh, you know, they're. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sorry, the Alameda Hospital District. <laughs> right. This sounds like a good two-hour agenda item for yeah. the retreat. Yeah, I think it's got to be a guided conversation. I really want to make sure we're all prepared for it. Um, yeah. and, I, and I feel it's a little overdue. I'm, 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 I'm feeling a little antsy about this. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> sure. So do we actually, want I should, if I could just say, I want to thank Joe as well for um, establishing about a year ago, or I think it was about a year ago that you established this committee. And um, it really, to the point of whether this should be done um, it, uh, either either um, just with the AHS board or with um, more community input. It already is being done. This joint committee is part of Alameda Healthcare District and the Alameda Healthcare District, um, Gail Godfrey-Kadiga is participating as well as Debbie Stebbins, the executive director, participating very closely with this. I, and um, so I think, you know, it, it's beneficial to Alameda Health to the Systems Board and in all future decision-making that we work on this together. I, I agree, but you know, at the end of the day, um, my obligation as a trustee is to make sure that we're doing something that protects the Alameda Health System, and um, and so that's why I'm asking for this clarity around what the what the challenges are, how we're going to jointly overcome them, because if it's a you know, it's it's more than just process for me. This is this is a business deal, and if we're going to really go forward with something, we 
We need a strategy that's jointly held. And no, and and understand what we're up against. So, so should we uh, put together a more uh, a tighter agenda for what we're going to discuss and the direction and so forth? For that, to yeah. our discussion? I mean, is yeah, that, is and I, I do so feel like that there's a piece of this of needing to ground the conversation as well, just in terms of like what are how does this all dovetail with our um, the, the equity conversation we were just having that uh, Trustee Chiquin brought these points up and what our obligation is um, uh, in terms of our relationship with the Alameda Healthcare District. So it's kind of there's a there's a tension I think that happens when we're talking about. Um, for lack of a better word, a place-based strategy where we're saying that, you know, we're here for this particular community, which, um, you know, we've, we've said before is not going to be an all medical population. It looks a little bit different. So there, so just naming what it, what is our, do we have goals around that? Do we have obligations around that? Um, and so for me, that's some, some of the discussion that probably needs to happen. Um, and sort of what the, what the expectations are and how do those line up with sort of the reality of what we're able to do, like you said, trustee should plan in order to keep the entire system sustainable. But I, I think it's important to, to name some of these things. Um, in addition to the financial impact is like the mission impact. Uh -huh. Well, and, and if, if, uh, if, Al if Alameda Hospital is part of the Alameda Health System network, and we've been trying to get to this network status, and we have an underutilized emergency room. I, I totally like what Ross is saying about using that emergency room to get people from Oakland over there that, that are in an emergency. We all know that the, the majority of San Leandro Hospital emergency room, emergency room visits are from East Oakland. They're not from San Leandro, they're from East Oakland. And if the emergency room in Alameda is being underutilized and we could fill it by diverting people from West Oakland there, because it's faster to get there than it is to get to Highland, then that makes it part of the network and it serves our entire population and can preserve what the folks on the island want. Um, sorry, not to go off on a tangent. But. Yeah, I completely agree, but I, I need to be confident that it's a real plan, that, that it can really, you know, not that we're aspirationally opening, hoping that's gonna happen, but we yeah. got deals in place, uh, pilots or whatever it is, right? Yeah, but I, I do, I do think it is one of those, you know, like the use of the ED, for instance, it's one of those things where the resources are there. It's a matter of getting together with the powers to be EMS, for instance. Yeah. Finding out whether it's something that they feel is, you know, it can be done, and then you know, with and then whether it's viable or not. And then, then what we do is we could test it out. You know, we could really, while we're going through this whole process, we could start diverting people to Alameda and see if it works, see if it works for the client, see if, see if. And you know, where I'm at a loss is I thought, and again, I know we talked about this a minute ago. I thought with this whole transfer center, we were already doing this. Maybe not for emergency visits. Not easy. Not easy. I was talking to the, to the EMS, it has to do with the whole Impala thing. You can't, you can't, you know, if somebody's brought to the uh, Highland emergency room, once they're there, even if they're full up, you don't send them to an, another emergency room. You have, you're required to treat That's them. Right. You can't do that. You actually would be um, accused, uh, uh, you, you'd be guilty of violating Impala. You have to stay well, I'm not talking about you give them. there. I'm sorry? 
I'm not talking about once they get to Highland. I'm saying our system knows that Highland's full automatically doesn't send people. So, so in the county, what I believe I do know is from the EMS agency perspective, uh, some counties when they run um, uh, 911 services, uh, uh, the ability to do diversion. So they will work with any health system uh, and when you are full or you're in uh, uh, patient flow, you can put yourself on divert status where you're or bypassed uh, where the EMS will not bring patients to you. Uh, my understanding is in Alameda County, that is not the case. Uh, and the decisions are squarely the EMS uh, providers on where is the uh, most proximate. Well, there are a couple of considerations with level of need, proximity, uh, insurance status might be one of the considerations depending on the level of need uh, uh, and other uh, patient choice sometimes. Actually, I uh, did a ride along once, and I remember one of, one of the considerations was, you know, if, if someone has Kaiser and they're uh, uh, injured, then they're gonna, and they're proximate, uh, they're going to try to get them to a Kaiser facility. Uh, uh, but uh, considerations uh, really kind of lie to them. So this would be a conversation that we could probably influence, but it's not ours to make, is my understanding. But, From my yeah. Understanding. yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, that's all I was going to say. But it, yeah. it's certainly it's certainly worth having the dialogue and seeing, sure. you know. And, and, and this it, is the dialogue with the county. Just to be clear, is that yes. what we're talking about? Yeah, with where well, we start there with the county EMS. Well, the, yeah, county EMS who contracts the service out, so they'd have to work with uh, the vendor. Yeah. But it probably would be uh, if there, if there is an issue, and I don't know it, uh, where the coverage of EMS services on the island are provided by the uh, fire department, then they're there probably would be some, uh, deeper contractual other issues that, that, that they'd have to work through uh, uh, in terms of the few bureaucracies. So, yeah. well, the, 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 the other part is, you know, from uh, the ambulance standpoint is if you can, if, the, if there's beds available, you can get your ambulance there, you can have the person triage, and then you go, you go on with your business. If, if, if it's filled up, then you've got to wait, you know, and, and this is a way of there, there might be incentive. I'm just saying there may be incentives in it for, for the ambulance companies to use, use, use uh, Alameda. For instance, if you're in Chinatown, China, Chinatown's right, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, within three miles of the hospital. I'm sorry, just a question about this that might actually be clarifying. Uh, so, so what Trustee Peterson is talking about is, is what's commonly referred to as wall time. So or it's when the ED or the paramedics come and they need to drop a patient off. Uh, how long is it before the point that they get there until the rig is back out in, on the street? Um, trying, we used to have reporting around this uh, countywide. Uh, Luis, didn't we have wall time numbers for uh, all three of our EDs? Or was Alameda not on No, no, we had it for all, for uh, only for Highland, uh, uh, John George, and, and the others. But we haven't seen those reports in, in quite a while now. No, I know. But I'm saying, was Alameda on that report at that time? Do you recall? I believe they were. I believe they were one of the better performers, or, uh, performers for wall time, which would suggest to me that actually there are EMS uh, 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 rigs going to Alameda, because they wouldn't have. The report came from the county. It wouldn't have been included. I don't think the uh, city of Alameda Fire Department. If they did, so, we can we can confirm. Any, anyway, my my point is that just as part of looking at this, think about things out of the box that would 
that let's say this was possible. If it was possible, it, it would really be a benefit to Highland Hospital's ED and it would be a benefit to Alameda's ED and clients would get treated soon. You know, yeah, I, I, I don't think anyone dis, uh, disputes that. I actually applaud you guys for coming up with the idea. Uh, it, 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 it warrants some additional exploration. You know, I would say two things here. There's a short-term and a long-term thing that needs to be uh, considered here. So obviously the short-term includes some of these ideas that you have in number one. Uh, the long-term is uh, uh, not that so long-term depending on what happens at the state level. And I think your report calls that out. And, and that is... You know, you have to make a decision relatively soon here, which we were all aware of when we made the 2020 commitment uh, or uh, 2030, unless until that changes. And you have at least some uh, rough order of magnitudes of what that uh, cost would be. And I believe I heard you say and in the report you reflect that uh, the options under consideration or potential things to uh, uh, do are to lobby for the extension and or to see if there are state resources that might help to uh, offset the cost. Um, I wonder, like, I, I thought that was one of the major focuses of what you would do in your group, which is to look at what are those other options? Because that, I, it seems like you possibly need a, a lot more uh, to say, like, where, where are the potential uh, uh, funding options for the 100 to $200 million that would uh, require to start that work of seismically uh, retrofitting or replacing that facility, which would be a multi-year construction project. Right. And I, I, that, you know, I think without legislative help, it's, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. I, the numbers are just too big. Too big. Yeah, too big. In my, in my opinion, Tracy, do you have a different take on it? No, that's why um, we looked at, we, we did look at options, and we looked at specifically at options that wouldn't require the building of a new acute care facility. So we, we want to present those, and we want to get direction and support from um, both boards to determine which direction, if any of those options are going to be appropriate. And, and that, I may have missed that. So you looked at options that wouldn't require being seismically compliant? We looked at options for fewer acute care beds that would still be compliant with um, with state law, yes. And we looked at having sniff beds, no. fewer acute beds and using the other site for, for more sniff beds. And we looked at um, at um, the site opportunities and options. But if we have, there's no requirement that there be 50 acute care beds at the hospital. So we I have, got that and, part of it, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. But I, there is a requirement that there be acute care beds with an emergency department. So... Correct. There's a, there's a legal requirement to retain the emergency department, and so given that there is that requirement, that that assumes that you're going to have a certain number of acute care beds, but and there is opportunity in part of the facility to have a number of acute care beds that wouldn't need reconstruction. Um, and then, then my 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 understanding, for instance, is on, on the on the psych and the Jero psych. That my understanding is the the seismic standards for psych and gyros, uh, for psych is somewhat different that they don't you don't have to meet all the 2030 requirements uh, so, so, so I think that would be helpful just as a part of that second uh, second half of the conversation to really uh, clarify so so what I believe I just heard uh, is that uh, one of the options that is under consideration is one where you could scale back the number of beds have them 
you you believe that one of the uh, uh, or part of the campus uh, is substantial enough to house everything that would be required for meeting the seismic standard post 2030 and that wouldn't require any uh, capital investment is that no 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 that's not much it would require some but not not a construction of a new hospital oh no i, I the new hospital was a 200 million the seismic retrofit of some scale i thought was in the hundred million dollar range yeah yeah it's it's a lot it's 120 but it's still a lot uh, so i think the thing is that um we are going through a process that needed to be when we started this the level of trust and just the discord between the groups was high so though we felt like we could jump into it and just get going on like hey um you know, how do we look, let's look at options of where the resources are going to come from first. We've kind of gone through a very thoughtful process of looking at the Kaufman report that Alameda Health District had done, looked at like how they're allocating cost. Now with the Wifley stage two, we are hoping to get, you know, so it is a more thoughtful and slower process than we would have. So, and any kind of, um, decision about like how we use it and things has to be with the stakeholder engagement with the people in the community and things. So I think that is going to be uh, next. Uh, we wanted to bring this to you, uh, our board first, uh, as a, I'm guessing that the Alameda Health District Board has also seen this report and then kind of come back and, um, you know, decide, finalize on the like the stakeholder process or any of the next steps that we need to do, whether it's legislation, whether it's, you know, um, all, all of the, you know, possible viable options that we might, th that might be feasible for us to do and, and really to rule out what's not feasible. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I still feel a little confused process-wise on, there's it seems like a lot of homework that needs to be done. I think some of it sounds like it might be by staff on the EMS part. Is that right? That's a staff looking into what's happening now and what, who we would have to, is that right? That staff would do homework on the EMS question about the ER, because that's one big chunk. The other big chunk that I need to really understand is, okay, how many, what's the minimum number of beds that doesn't require the seismic? Retrofit, if that's what we're saying. It's actually in the report. The, okay. the, the, so. problem, the problem is that uh, to maintain an ED and a, uh, an, an acute care beds there, there are going to have to be seismic uh, changes made, period. It's just a matter of under one scenario, you can do it within the existing buildings, okay? Mm -hmm. And then there's another scenario where you would have to, you'd have to build a new hospital. And the scenarios are actually covered in the report. But the other scenario, if we said, you know, we that, okay, EMS can't go to that ED, it's going to keep being underutilized, it's something that doesn't make sense for us to have at all, then is that another scenario or that's not on the table of not having an ED? Well, if we decided not to go with an ED or acute beds, then we would we'd be in a violation of our JPA agreement. And so that that at that point we would have to go back to we have to go back to Alameda Health District and say, you know, we can't continue the JPA. Uh, but we're, we're we're only talking about options that are done together, right? I mean, yeah, so yeah. that would. Right. And remember, one, one of the one of the things the 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 suggestion for Kaufman Hall was to look 
uh, you know, working with our strategic planners to look at where we think uh, uh, Alameda Health System's needs are going to be in 2030, and does it really make does it make sense to what 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 is the configuration of services that makes the most sense for us, and where and within that, where does Alameda fit in? Where does San Leandro fit? In? Where do, you know, and and that that would help us to make the decision, I think, because it would it would become clear. Well, we have these needs that are unmet. We need, you know, we need more resources for, or, or God, it doesn't fit. You know, I think so there's that's a the next conversation we need to have. I mean, right. I mean, the the problem with that is that we're pretending like we have resources. <laughs> um, we, we don't have any financial resources. The county would absolutely have to be part of any conversation involves any investment. And I think they need to be involved at this point in terms of us assuming a loss, even in next fiscal year. We need to start getting them engaged in this so we're all making a decision together on this. Um, but we, we, don't, um, we don't control our purse strings. No, I, I know. I know. But, but I, I think the, the question is, 2030s rolling down the hill you know we're kicking the bucket you know we're kicking the can down year after year and i think the question is to me is from it strategically is where where do where do all these resources fit in and and do they make sense to be part of our overall strategy and if they do then let's let's start lobbying you know for the best uses of them and if they don't then we have to seriously look at disengaging ourselves you know Right. But I think uh, I, I think with with some outside help, you know, in our strategic planning, you know, in strategic planning process, we can. It might be that we say, "Oh my God, we we don't need any any more acute beds at all." In 2030, we're going to have more than we need, you know. And I think that would that sort of be the end of the discussion. Anyway, it might go the other way. It says, "Oh my God, we need you know 50 more acute beds than we have right now," you know. So we need to figure that question out first. Yeah, and then and then I think you know Devecki has hit on this before. Is then you know once we figure out you know it's it's both it's both resources and and if we're going to build new resources, where is the where is the best fit to build those resources, taking into consideration the the needs of the overall communities. Yeah, it's. A, Sorry, I thought this was going to be a 15-minute conversation. <laughs> you awesome. did? Yeah. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm glad we saved this for the retreat. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> we've dipped but, our toe in now. But I, I, I guess, I guess, Joe, getting back to what you were saying before, maybe, maybe it would be worth us kind of putting together a thoughtful outline for how we would discuss this at the retreat. And by the way, if I could interject to uh, to Lewis's point about the county, you know, Supervisor Chan made it very clear that she wanted to help us in this process and be engaged in it. And we asked, uh, to, uh, to an extent, we asked Assemblymember Bonta also to be involved. And, and we have these other bigger stakeholders that can really help uh, and should come to the table. And Senator uh, Skinner, too, right? She's asked to be involved. Okay, sure, sure. Um, yeah, uh, but... Anyway, I just think that we should take, uh, in particular, we should take Supervisor Chan up on this, uh, you know, uh, willingness to be part of it. 
because I think she could really bring you know, a lot of folks to the table and, and the, the conversation would be would be more holistic. And so I think we should invite her to, to, to help us with that. Yeah. I mean, she knows this issue better than anybody. Well, yeah. than most. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a valuable resource and we have to, you know, we have to figure out what's the best course. Um, I agree. If I could just add, there's, if the board wants to delve even deeper, there's a whole, um, thanks to Rana for putting together a whole, um, a whole section of our resource files on the Alameda Hospital, Alameda Health System merger, including a lot of discussion about um, acute care needs, discussions presented by, um, by principals and, and, and leaders, um, Richard Espinoza, when he was with Alameda Hospital before the merger. Now, he, as we all know, he's with Alameda Health System, but Richard presented some great information about what the needs were with regard to um, post-acute at, at that time, as far as Alameda Hospital's capacity when he was there. And so, and uh, along with a lot of other projections. So that might be of interest to look back six years and, and see what Alameda Health System was looking for six years ago. And then maybe we'll have an idea of what we're gonna be looking for in, 10 years from now. So I'm, I'm, rec I'm recommending that we consider this as an offsite item or for our offsite. Yes, so is the item AHS 2030 or is the item specific really to looking at the recommendations of the seismic committee as it relates to Alameda Hospital? Because to me those are Two different things, and they're pro they're re they're obviously related, and so I I don't know. Um, yeah, well, there, there's an there's certainly an overlap between the two of them. I, it's hard to talk about one without talking about the other. Um, okay, we will be we will take this up at our next um, meeting, and I'm going to suggest we we do dedicate a couple hours to it. I'm I'm guessing uh, at least, and then think about whether we're ready to invite. Uh, into the conversation and if there's some uh if there's some homework on this ems question that can be done by staff in the interim i think that could be potentially helpful um is that fair and um, ross you mentioned it's part of an off-site does that mean we actually might get out of out of the the room for the next retreat or will we be having it at <laughs> windowless each of us can be off-site wherever we want but i'm pretty sure we'll be in the room <laughs> I want to be at King Kinney's um, place. In the yeah, summer. exactly. I'm with you. Okay, great. Any more? Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that this was so controversial. I didn't mean it to be, but it is. What no, it it's is. just complicated. I think it's just complicated, and and the next steps are aren't uh, super clear. I think, um, yeah. But we'll get there. Um, okay. Any more discussion on item F two? Yes, that I would recommend that everybody, when you have an opportunity, look in detail at the handouts. They really do provide a lot of information. Yep. Great. Thank you. Thanks for doing the work, uh, those of you who are on that committee. Yes, it's a lot. All right. Item F three. We have action item approval of a new agreement with Teamworks Construction or Construction Service for the Courthouse Square renovation project. Luis. Yes, uh, good evening, trustees. Uh, I, um, as you all are aware, just to provide some context, you've read uh, the, I'm sure you've read the summary that was provided by our contracting team. Uh, but essentially at a high level, what we're looking at here is this is the tenant improvements that are required to go ahead and outfit the space 
uh, at Courthouse Square, uh, which is a county-owned building uh, that they have identified uh, for us uh, as part of the transaction, part of the discussion and agreement that we made uh, to uh, exit from our current space out at Creekside in San Leandro uh, as a result of the fact that uh, Alameda County was looking to consolidate their entire public health department into one location or all of their healthcare services agency into one location. And so the intent at the time was to go ahead and, and uh, put us in a position where we could go ahead and, and discontinue our lease obligation at Creekside and uh, have them uh, take over that lease, uh, we would continue to occupy the space for a period of time as we were working on a transition. Uh, and uh, and then they would go ahead and, and begin their construction, begin their work so they can go ahead and, and retrofit uh, Creekside to accommodate their entire health care services agency, specifically the public health department, as I believe they are relocating from Broadway. Uh, we identified through that whole process a location uh, at, at Courthouse Square. It is directly across from uh, across the freeway essentially from our Hayward Clinic. So to give you a frame of reference, it is in that location there. And so uh, we were able to secure a portion of the half of the first floor and the entire second floor uh, for us to accommodate our entire uh, uh, IT uh, department, information systems department. And so uh, the, the, the issue was that uh, the, the first floor, although there is very little work to be done in the first floor, the second floor was originally, or it, it, the, the use of the space was, uh, it used to belong to the probation department. And so the use of the space was, lar uh, was uh, largely comprised of a, a, a whole bunch of small interview rooms that they were using for meetings with whatever work they did in, in the probation department. And so uh, it really was not conducive to, to what we need uh, for accommodating all of our staff. And so, um, you, know, they're, they're, you know, we had to go back in and, and the work, this contract is to bring in a contractor to go ahead and, and uh, clear out the space, uh, you know, rebuild the space in a way that uh, provides uh, some offices, some conference space, but it's largely an open area uh, where we will repurpose all of our current cubicle furniture that we have at Creekside and uh, transition it over to that new location. And so that's essentially the, the large scale uh, portion of the work. You know, there is some work that needs to be done uh, in the building. Uh, unfortunately, just like with anything else, when you, uh, in, you know, uh, engage in any construction activity that you are then required to uh, take a, a, a building that may have been um, previously grandfathered for certain conditions, you have to bring some of those conditions up to code at that point in time. And so we're having to do some mechanical, electrical, and things of that nature as a result of uh, those required updates and upgrades to, to the code. And so this, uh, this scope of work that we're presenting to you all uh, encompasses all of that. Uh, of note, what I would want to share is, uh, you know, since uh, April, uh, we have uh, we have not paid uh, rent at uh, Creekside, and uh, the county has assumed that responsibility uh, the moment they received approval from their board. Uh, and then we have an MOU with them that uh, that space at Creekside uh, at Courthouse Square is uh, is free of charge uh, until 2025. And so for the next five years. Uh, they are taking on that responsibility and healthcare services agency is covering the expense of that entire footprint, uh, half of the first floor and the entire second floor for the next five years. Wow. And so uh, we're, we're, we're recognizing uh, some, some savings in, in lease 
uh, payments, uh, which will certainly offset, obviously, this initial expense, uh, this one-time expense to uh, retrofit the space to allow us to accommodate our staff. Um, again, we have also experienced uh, some changes over the last three months uh, where, uh, you know, we're, we're having to reevaluate uh, how we uh, leverage the space, uh, recognizing social distancing and what our new what the what the future will be like uh, in order to accommodate staff. Uh, we were looking initially at uh, fitting 100 and uh, about 115 workstations between that, you know, half first floor and, and, and second floor. Uh, and so that's what we consider to be ultra high density uh, space. And so that, you know, that's something that we're having to look at. And so how that impacts, obviously, your HVAC systems, how that impacts your uh, electrical systems, and then how we're managing, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the safety of the staff and, and what this new normal will look like. And so, well, again, we're not, we're not making any changes to the, to the space layout, but how we operationalize that and how we start staffing or manning the space will be something that will be determined and driven by our future state and how we're looking at um, accommodating, you know, use of that and, and ensuring that we're maintaining the safety of our staff. So that's at a high level, uh, you know, the project itself. I certainly have uh, Baljeet who has been leading this project and working closely with GSA, uh, the county and and our contractors to answer any questions you may have. Uh, we would entertain those now. This one's for uh, both you, Luis, and also probably Kim on this. Uh, when, when we take into all these considerations, what's the net on this? We're spending two million, but we're saving five of rent. How much, what, what's going to be the net win? Is, it, is this a net win? And if so, what's the scale of the net win? Including all the time lost and, all, and, and the effort we put in? Do we have a number on that? I'll, uh, I, again, I think we have, we have a number on, the, uh, on our, our, uh, the, the memo that, that, that you have before you. Uh, there was uh, uh, some dollars that we're looking at. Uh, as far as the, the exact number uh, tapped, I, I, Dr. Bouquet, I don't uh, recall the exact uh, figure, but we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, we were spending uh, approximately, um, you know, o o a little over a million dollars a year in, in Creekside. Uh, and, uh, you know, now we're looking at Courthouse Square for the next five years. Uh, we're not paying any rent. So if we're spending, you know, two million, I would say at a high level. And I believe if, we, if, we, if I look at the summary, we're looking at a savings of about three million or so overall over the period of time. Okay. Uh Luis, I have an interesting question because um, you mentioned, you know, of course, pandemic. Uh, I think a lot of people aren't going to be returning to work cubicles anytime soon. And more and more people are going to work remotely, you know, permanently. Um, I mean, are we are we making an investment here in so, something that we're actually not going to need? Um, I, I, I should point out that I was having problems with my iPad today. And I had really great help from a woman who works for the help desk. And I asked her, oh, where do you work? She's like, well, I work at home. I was like, oh, right, of course. I'm like, where do you normally work? She's like, well, I would work at, at Highland, but, you know, we've all been working from home for the past couple of months. And she was, the service was excellent, didn't, didn't need an office. Um, so has there been thought to that? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there, there, there's been a tremendous amount of consideration for that, uh, and it's a great question, uh, Trustee DeVries. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're looking at, and I've been working closely with our uh, Chief Information Officer with Mark, and uh, you're absolutely right. What the future state, is, you know, what, what it's going to look like is certainly not going to be what we, what we were accustomed to in the past. 
uh, but there is a need for them to continue to uh, you know provide on-site support uh, it may not be an every single day thing but uh, there is you know they are looking at developing a plan where there are rotating staff uh, where uh, a percentage of the staff let's just you know I'm just for the purposes of discussion one third of the staff would be at the space at any given point in time and so you know they're looking at you know three on site but there's still that requirement of them working together to ensure that we're looking at is that we're, you know like we're having trainings four days a week you know where we're you know training staff on epic and some of the things that we're having to deal with and so um you know the, you know we will always have a need for the space and and uh you know one of the things that we're considering as well is that you know sharing of cubicle space is not something that it's probably well received and ideal uh especially in the, in our new normal and so you know having the space laid out where people have their own space uh even though they may not be there every single day they will certainly spend some time during the week in that space well i'd move approval if people don't have any other questions other questions on this item second all those in favor Aye. 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 Any opposed? Any abstaining? Okay. Motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, our next action item uh, F4 approval of the resolution changing the name of Alameda Health Partners to East Bay Medical Group, Dr. Jamalaji. Hi, good, uh, good evening again. So this is uh, the agreement, the affiliate agreement with Ocare Medical Group and the Alameda Health Partners. It was uh, with the joining of the, of the physicians from the Ocare Medical Group that will change the name of Alameda Health Partners to the East Bay uh, Medical Group. There was a voting process for this from the physicians in both the Ocare Medical Group and the Alameda Health Partners, and they settled on this name. This name was uh, vetted by legal uh, to ensure that it is uh, it is uh, appropriate and it can be used, and we are asking to have an approval for this name. Motion to approve. I, I second, second that. <clears throat> okay, I think Joe, uh, Trustee Debris got the second in there. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed or abstain? All right, motion carries. I just want to point out, like, I think this is like a monumentous moment that deserves a quick pause. Um, thank, you know, thank you, Joe. Thank you, uh, Tracy Uh The O'Care uh, Medical Group have uh, all signed their employee agreement as of uh, yesterday evening and this morning. So uh, we're moving forward to July 1st. I just yeah. hope that the sense of uh, partnership and collaboration that we've tried to build over the uh, past year in, in, in creating this unified group um, can continue in a strong way uh, into the future so that doctors and our providers feel that they're, they're uh, uh, equal partners in the decision-making process around the healthcare needs of the people we serve. Certainly. Thank you. And yeah, thank you, Trustee DeVries and Trustee Hernandez. I know there was a lot of work uh, put in along the way here. Um, so uh, yes, we're almost there. Um, wonderful. Good name too. I, I just want to say we're not out of the woods yet. I think that there have been 
a couple of uh, hiccups in the last few weeks. And I won't dive into them right now. I think that um, in any venture of this kind, there's some real challenges in having everyone agree on every single detail. But I don't want to minimize the fact that, uh, you know, this last week there's been a few things that people were very concerned about. And so let's just remember to keep our eyes on the prize, but at the same time, you know, it's been tough on a couple of folks. So um, I appreciate uh, Dr. Jamaluddin's hard work and it's very difficult to please everyone, but I don't want us to think that everything has gone completely smooth. So let's be careful about that. I do, just out of respect for physicians that have been voicing concerns about things. Absolutely. We have still a great deal of work uh, ahead of us, great deal of uh, communication. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Cultural shift and you don't you don't you don't make cultural shift. I don't think with with uh, without uh, recognizing that the longstanding uh, mindsets and uh, uh, practices and things that will will we'll just uh, smoothly uh, move forward. I think that takes a lot of work and uh, uh, sometimes uh, mindsets can be changed and sometimes they, they can't, uh, but you have to work through it all. And I think my sense is everybody's committed to doing that as much as possible and, and, and continue the positive uh, uh, progress and momentum. Yeah, thank you. And I think all of the challenges are noted and we're not out of the woods and there's a lot of work ahead of us. And I think that, um, I hope everyone agrees that the structure and the intent will lend itself well, but mainly the new structure will really lend us uh, itself, I think, to um, uh, more streamlined and I think uh, unified sort of care for our patients sort of being under one umbrella. And so I think there's a huge opportunity here. It's not going to be a foregone conclusion. It's not going to happen by itself. Um, but I like to think that we've at least laid this um, foundation and a framework so that we can do that into the future. And so I do think um, it's something uh, not to, not to uh, celebrate early, uh, but to um, just uh, feel good about that we've gotten here, I think. Yeah, step on the right direction. Thanks to everyone. Okay, great. Uh, item F5, you're still on Dr. Jamaluddin approval of the appointments to the East Bay Medical Group Transitional Board. Uh, so uh, the East Bay Medical Group will start with the transitional board that was agreed also in the affiliate agreement. Two members of the OCARE Medical Group will join the transitional board. They are named here, who are Dr. Nick Nelson and Dr. Jean Hearn. Uh, in addition to from administration, who is the, uh, Mr. Luis Fonseca and myself, uh, we have one physician who continues to serve on the HP from the HP board. Uh, Dr. Uh, Valerie Ng, and uh, two community physicians. One is Dr. Kathleen Clannon, who has been serving uh, on, on the HP board. And we have a new member who needs to be voted, in addition to Dr. Jean Hearn, Dr. Nick Nelson, who's Dr. Michael Lenore. Uh, the, the, community, the new community member was uh, also voted by the unification group that included physicians from OCARE Medical Group and from the Alameda Health Partners. So I request uh, your approval for uh, for this transitional board. Motion to approve. Second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 All right. 
All right, motion carries, thank you. I think the only thing I would just call out here for our board is that my understanding is this, so this is a transitional board, meaning that a, a, a permanent board would still need to be seated at some point in the future. And this, again, wanting us to think from that lens of how we're ensuring that we have um, leadership uh, that includes representation and is reflective of the community that we're serving. And us, the board of trustees, I think, uh, weigh in on um, the bylaws. And this is one of those areas of the bylaws that I believe that we are able to weigh in, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so just something for us to consider as we move forward. Um, can I ask a question since I, um, I, I, this, the vote came up rather suddenly and I meant to ask after the vote and after the um, motion in second, but I wanted to ask Dr. Jamaldine, is this, this, um, and I haven't been on any of the committees, so this is, is not exactly a merger, but this is a coming together of AHP and um, what was formerly Oak Care, is that correct? That's correct. And um, so the each of those organizations had their own governance system in place, right? And so now, is there going to be a, um, how is it going to work? Is there going to be a search for a new, um, a new executive director or some sort of person to oversee the new organization? So uh, the transitional board will be working on addressing uh, those those issues. And uh, and uh, depending on the on the need, we'll we'll decide on those on all those questions. And so right now, well then, will the physician one of the physician board will they take some um, oversight or some of the actions of the of the leadership of the what would be a director or a um, CEO of the new organization? You mean the president of the organization? He will be the president voted of the by the board, right? Yeah. Yeah, the president of the organization will be voted by the board. Okay, and then that, and then the board will hire a CEO or a executive well, the, director. The, pres, the president will will hire will hire a CEO uh, will hire a director. Okay. Thanks for your help. Okay. Any other discussion on that that item? Alrighty, uh, item F6, this is the UCSF uh, Bay Faculty Surgeons for Provision of Surgery Services Across AHS Facilities, Dr. Jamal. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Abueleta. Uh, Trustee DeVries asked us to look uh, uh, after the Finance Committee at this, at this uh, contract. And, uh, you know, question came about in view of our financial situation and the impact of Corona, whether something can be done on this. A few uh, clarifications which we made and we communicated with UCSF. Number one is that there is no COLA increase in this in this contract. Uh, number two, we asked if UCSF uh, has decreased their uh, salaries for their physicians. Uh, and they said no, but they are on a hiring freeze. And uh, if they are treating us the same way, and the answer was uh, yes, treat us the same way. So there is an empty position in this contract that we freeze for one year, the understanding to, to open it after one year, especially after the volumes have come back. And they we will freeze also an administrative position of 0.6 FTE. This will bring some, uh, some uh, additional saving for this contract. Now, this contract includes all our trauma services for, uh, for Highland, in addition to general surgery services for the system, 
and uh, vascular uh, surgery services uh, also for, uh, for Highland as well as uh, Alameda Hospital and some of for San Leandro. Can I just add, Trustee um, um, DeVise and others, uh, so I appreciated the overture and in addition to everything uh, Dr. Chid just said, and I, he may have said it and I missed it, but um, one of the bigger drivers I recall from the discussion in Finance Committee was uh, the um, the exploration of whether the approach to uh, salaries that we may take across the rest of the organization as we put our budget together uh, could be considered in the context of this entity too. And what we corroborated and what you see in your documentation there is that there are no increases, salary increases in this um, uh, um, um, uh, proposal uh, in that they actually are carrying forward the same salaries I think, uh, for the past three years and Ira and Orgesan can correct me on that. So it's it's uh, frozen. There are no increases uh, from that. That's that correct. Right? There will be no increase in this contract for, for any salary. Okay. Yeah. It then answered our questions. Just to clarify for the rest of the board, the Finance Committee decided not to recommend this uh, to um, the full board for passage, but that doesn't mean we were opposed to it. We just wanted staff to answer the question that they just answered. Well, and actually a little bit more to the point. Um, and again, I have profound respect for our providers um, and I'm not, don't not want these comments to be construed as, as not being uh, supportive of our providers. But when we're faced with a huge crisis and a financial crisis, I think the thought was, if we have to tighten our belts, that everyone has to tighten their belt. And this belt lives in a contract, not in a wage. And it, so it's a little bit harder to know. So it doesn't actually sound like there's any t belt tightening, but there's certainly no belt loosening with this contract. And I, I really appreciate you answering that. The fact that they have not seen any cost of living adjustment in three years, that, that's, that says a lot. Um, I know everyone works really hard, um, but I also know that if we're going to make serious cuts uh, that could potentially impact services or labor, um, you know, and I'll just say what I said in the finance committee, you know, if I <clears throat> lose 5% of my salary and I make $40,000 a year, uh, it's hard to put food on the table. If I lose... 5% of my salary and make a quarter of a million dollars a year, um, I can still eat pretty well. And so like that, it was, it was more about, can we try to see that our cuts that have to be made are progressive? Um, and, and, and this, you know, so that was why and this contract's big. So again, it wasn't that, that was, that was kind of the thinking about why we didn't recommend it while we wanted more information. So I think it is helpful to know that they have remained at level. I think that that is a sign that our, those providers are, uh, recognize the environment within which they work, and, and I think that's great. Thank you, Trustee DeVries. Other trustees have questions or comments before we take a vote? Do I have a motion? Sure, I'll move. Second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 <coughs> motion passes. The staff reports, we have written reports. Did any trustees have questions on staff reports? Okay. 
All right, then I think we are ready to move into closed session. Yeah, there's a couple items uh, for the closed session uh, <clears throat> involving our uh, first discussion of labor matters, uh, then uh, a couple of uh, potential litigation items, and then a performance value and all is set within the agenda. All right. With that, we will adjourn to closed session.